VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, December the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is the producer. Today is the day for you to join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So this morning, in an effort to wake up and get a little, little tiny bit of exercise, a little quick power walk in the neighborhood, it was a little slick on my street, feels like and looks like with the RDF that it's warmed up enough where there's probably not any black ice around, but you know the deal. I had to stick to the ice for a second. We lost Mike Bossy this year, right? One of the greatest goal scorers in the history of the National Hockey League. It was the day in 1978 that Bossy scored his first NHL hat trick. It didn't end there. Bossy scored a hat trick in 5.2% of the games he played, by far the highest on the list of those who have scored in the NHL hat trick or one or more. That was in 752 games. He had 39 hat tricks in his regular season career, added five more in 129 postseason games, and of course, four time Stanley Cup champion, the great Mike Bossy. And talking about hat tricks, so. Today in 2017, Cristiano Ronaldo, a Portuguese superstar, he won his fifth Ballon d'Or for the best footballer in the world. That tie Lionel Messi, Argentinian, he went on, Messi that is, went on to win two more. He has seven more than anybody else. But Ronaldo yesterday at the World Cup, he was sat out. He didn't start for his country, which is remarkable. He's one of the most famous footballers in the world. And the young fellow that started in his uh, place was a kid named Gonzalo Ramos. His fourth touch of a ball... In the international games, 53 minutes in, he had his second goal. He went on to score two more yesterday, a hat-trick as a replacement in his first start at the World Cup. Ronaldo's bench, because of his poor attitude, when he was taken out of the last game in the group stages, he was obviously and visibly upset. Then apparently he was scolded by the coach for being not a team player. Then Ronaldo put his finger up against his lips and gave him the old shh-shh-shh, trying to shush the coach. Well, the coach had, I guess, the authority in the last laugh. He sat him on the bench. All right, one more quick sports note. Oh, on the, on the hockey front, one more time. So Zach Dean and Ryan Green, both from this province, going to the Team Canada selection camp. 29 players. By Monday, there'll be 23 players. That'll form the team to play in Halifax and Moncton in the Christmas tourney. It was a couple of years ago we had two Newfoundlanders. Of course, Newhook and Mercer played for the country. There's a lot of black cloud over Hockey Canada these days, but we sure wish the two young fellas, Dean and Green, nothing but the very best. One of the things that I dislike about that tournament is when the TV cameras follow the coaching staff to the hotel room doors, knock on the door to see a sleepy-headed junior hockey player to tell them right there and then that they didn't make the team. I mean, it's just so unnecessary, right? But anyway, good luck to the boys. And the last quickie on sports, 1985, Bo Jackson won his Heisman Award as, of course, for the best football player in the NCAA. Probably the best multi-sport professional athlete of all time, which goes to show that even if you love hockey so much you want to play 12 months a year, maybe, just maybe, it's best for your body and best for your athletic prowess to play more than one sport. And on the sporting front today, 131 years ago today, James Naismith, Canadian, YMCA teacher, living in the States, and invented the game of basketball today in ni- er, pardon me, 1891. So looking for an indoor activity during the winter, a couple of peach buckets were nailed to the op- opposite ends of the Springfield, Massachusetts College Gym. Get the boys to throw soccer balls into them. Eventually, they had the wisdom to cut the bottom out of the bucket so they didn't have to get up on ladders to retrieve the ball every time someone sunk one. 
He founded the basketball program at the University of Kansas, wrote the original basketball program, rule book, pardon me. He actually lived long enough to see basketball adopted as an Olympic demonstration sport. So James Naismith, Canadian, invented basketball. Okay. So yesterday, some grocery store executives testified in Ottawa in front of the House of Commons Agricultural Committee. They're studying food inflation and the potential for price gouging. And well, the grocery store executives, they're not pleased. Here's a kind of a weird statement from Pierre Saint Laurent. He's the chief operating officer of Empire. He says, Empire does not like inflation. Oh, no, you don't, eh? Neither do we. Now, there is lots of debate as to whether or not there is some taking advantage of political rhetoric regarding inflation and seeing resulting increased profits because of what people might refer to as price gouging. Now, it's always interesting to see the billionaires of the world getting on television in the rads trying to pump their holiday appetizers. The profits are way up, but of course... Prices are way up. Their suppliers' price that they're charging the grocers is way up. Their inputs are way up. I get all of that. But it'd be nice to see exactly what profitability looks like as opposed to simply revenue side. That doesn't really tell the tale. So are they gouging us at the grocery store? Certainly feels like it. They swear in front of a House of Commons committee that that's not the case, but... We all see it and feel it. They're saying that we're experiencing a unique confluence of events. War, extreme weather, soaring food prices, disruption in the supply chain, labor shortages, all of which is very, very true. But it's the issue that brought to bear by Sylvain Charlebois, who I quote all the time on the program, uh, Dalhousie University professor of food distribution and policy. He's talking about the Competition Bureau. He says the Competition Bureau is constantly failing the Canadian public by not providing forceful support to lawmakers in Canada when it simply endorses acquisitions and oversees investigations with little or no vigor. Price of groceries is on the agenda here today if you're into it. In France in 2016, the government of the country mandated that grocers are not allowed to throw out food. Now, of course, there's going to be some food at the variety grocery stores that when they go to throw it out, it's no longer fit. I get that. But there is certainly an opportunity for more formalized activity and arrangements between food banks and community organizations and grocery stores big and small. Some grocery stores are in on the action, like in Marystown. Where did I see that story? I'll find it in a second. In Marystown, the fellow who owns the No Frills, they've reached a formal arrangement where they're throwing away less and less. And consequently, the town has been able to see those types of gifts or donations coming from the grocery store to be distributed to those who are hungry. We know food bank usage in this province is about 27% up year over year. So is it time to make some more formal arrangements? Because Canada has a massive problem with food wastage, whether it be household waste or waste coming from a grocery store and or distributor. So, you know, we've got to get down to brass tacks here and overturn every stone that will see a reduction in the numbers of people who are starving, numbers of people who are relying on a food bank, numbers of people that are going without. So you hear me talking about... Food a lot, but for me, it's a public health crisis. And, you know, some people will be able to stave off the wolf from the door with some of these cost of living checks. You know the ones, the 500 bucks and sliding scale up to 250. Apparently, there's a bunch of checks stuck at Canada Post that have an address for an apartment building, but no apartment number. So if you're in that boat, give us a call so we can possibly put you in touch with the right people to make sure that that check gets out the door ASAP and into your hands, and whether it be spent at the grocery store or otherwise, we'll see what we can do. Okay, and on the world of supports, 
The pandemic supports from the federal government were enormous. And of course, the programs were devised very quickly. We know that there was the absence of some oversight into who was getting the checks, who was applying, whether people were double dipping, whether the companies were real, all of those things. So the country's Auditor General and the office has said that there's now a minimum of $27.4 billion in suspicious COVID-19 benefit payments. So they also go on to say that it doesn't look like they're going to be able to, in a costly fashion, recover or retrieve any significant percentage of that money out the door. That, of course, is on top of the $4.6 billion in confirmed government overpayments solely in the world of double dipping. So we're in excess of $30 billion out the door where we're not really sure if it went to who it was intended to go to. The Auditor General points out that the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, and Employment and Social Development Canada did not manage the selected COVID programs efficiently. That's, of course, speed sometimes is required, but speed also can be the damnation of some of these programs. So we'll see what becomes of it, but here's some numbers for your consideration. Uh, $210 billion of payments were made through the government's six COVID-related uh, benefit programs. The biggest one, $100 billion in the emergency wage subsidy, an excellent program that unfortunately was abused knowingly and willfully by so many companies, and they've gotten off scot-free. But individuals, we've seen clawbacks in different parts of the country on the CERB. So in the CERB business, there was $74.8 billion in the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, $28.4 billion in the Canada Recovery Benefit. Now, it is important to note, inside this report as well, these numbers are massive. Of course they are. But the Auditor General also says, quote, The audit also said that without the pandemic supports offered to individuals and businesses, the poverty rate would have almost doubled during the pandemic, from 6.4% to 11.6%. So, while they moved at breakneck speed to get the money in the hands of businesses and individuals, you wonder what it would have looked like in the aftermath, wherever we are in the pandemic, if the supports weren't there. Because recovering from that explosion in the poverty rate, the numbers of bankruptcies, people who would have maybe lost their home, businesses that would have shuttered, it would have been much more bleak than the massive debt load, in my opinion, much more bleak than the massive debt load that the country carries as a result of those benefits. But, And of course, it was taxable income. Some people found themselves in a bit of a jam when it came to the next tax season because sometimes it's so easy to spend what you got in your hand and to stow some away for a rainy day and or for the tax man became a potential problem. Okay. You know, on top of the difficult stories and the difficult times that we're dealing with, I do, thankfully, hear about programs, big and small, community efforts, family efforts, not-for-profits, just social circles, who are trying to do something to brighten the holiday season, for other people, for seniors, the Caring Cards for Seniors, and Christy Peter, who we've had on the show, and send it to seniors, uh, a lady who owns a cleaning company, I think it's called Magic Sparkle, that, you know, trying to put a hamper or even some small gifts, or letters from brownies, or letters from school, uh, school-aged children, in the hands of seniors in long-term care facilities, or any congregant living facility, just to bring a smile to their face. So, this is what we need between now and the end of the programming season, which for us is right up to December 23rd. Bring some of those stories, and it doesn't have to be some massive thing where you're going to satisfy thousands of people, young and old, or old is any little thing that you'd like to bring some attention to, to highlight, you never know. It might see a bit of an uptick in the people who are willing to and wanting to either help, whether it be with their own effort and elbow grease, 
and or a few bucks and or a toy and or a letter, whatever it is. Those stories are going to make it a lot easier for me and you and everyone else that we pepper those in with some good news and some big smiles because God knows I need it. And if I need it, you probably all do. So some of those stories are just most welcome here on the program. Even if it's some of the things that you've figured out to you know, approach the holiday season, even though a little bit more strapped financially than in years past, how you're going to approach it, what you're going to do. you know, Just do me a favor and bring some of those positive stories because it's important. Uh, the Monday Pond Walk-In Clinic is now going to dedicate more appointments for children. Everybody knows the story. If you're the parent of a school-aged child and or you have nephews and nieces or simply in your neighborhood, the absentee rate in school is unbelievable. And today is the update on the COVID hub. And of course, it's not just about COVID. It's about seasonal influenza and the other respiratory illnesses. But it is becoming a bigger problem day over day. And so Monday Pond Walking Clinic is doing the right thing. I would suggest that many other clinics should really carefully consider opening more appointments dedicated for children. Because we've heard the stories. That one lady we spoke about yesterday out in CBS, she was told via 811 that she had to bring her I think three-year-old, to a doctor within 24 hours. And so then the mad scramble took place. Finally got the treatment she required, but let's see if we can talk about that. And again, if you have been able to find some of the children's cold and cough and flu medicine on the shelves wherever, let us know. And if you go to the pharmacy, don't see it, ask the pharmacist. There might be an opportunity for an alternative. So I know parents are worried. And if you've got some ideas about how you've been able to Get some meds for your child, whether it be at a compound pharmacy or you ask the pharmacist or whatever. You can bring those stories to the show as well. 811 has been the hub of medical information. And it's bombarded. Bombarded with calls. This is news to me, but apparently over the last five years has cost well in excess of $30 million. This is much to the agitation of family clinicians, family doctors. So... Uh, The family doctors will tell me that they're getting nickel and dimed. And sometimes the bills are being refused. Or sometimes they just resubmit with a lower cost. And for a visit charged to MCP for an adult, 33 bucks. Apparently, on 811, it's a much different circumstance. So they're getting up to $82 just to uh, take a call to refill a prescription, for instance. And any referrals, regardless of how long they take, they're getting much more than the family doctors are. So, what is the, what's behind this? The Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association is looking for more information on it, and hopefully when they get it, they can share it with me so I can share it with you. Is it because we don't have staff here to answer these calls? Because you will get to speak with a registered nurse, for instance, so we've contracted it out. They're doing great. What does that mean for retention of family doctors when they see and hear these stories? So, I guess we'll have to reach out to the NLMA. I don't know if they've got any answers or clarification from the department at this moment in time but when we see the struggles to get the family doctors and they compare their billing with 811's billing then it's just going to create another issue for the concept of retention anyway also last night i do appreciate being in an airport for the old kiss and cry you know at the bottom of the escalator or the stairs when you greet your loved one or a friend who's visiting what have you the fourth charter of Ukrainians arrived last night. There's over 1,500 have, have now made their way from their war-torn country to this province, about 700 of them on a charter flight. You know, I know people understand that they are literally running for their lives, 
and some of the family reunification last night, some of those stories are really quite pleasant. And again, to reiterate, in my personal opinion, it does not make you a bad person to ask some questions out loud. Where are they living? We heard the housing crunch stories. What's the access to uh, health care? Again, this is not to say they're not welcome, and I understand the concept of immigration, and the death rate has doubled the birth rate in this province. There's a lot of work to be done for a long-term, viable, sustainable, economically strong province. But how are we dealing with them in their, the immediacy of their arrival? That, and again, it doesn't make you anti-immigration to ask fundamental questions. You know, Jerry Byrne, the minister responsible, says that two-thirds of the newcomers have already found a job. Good thing. But there's also housing, there's also health care to be considered. Uh, welcome and hopefully they stay in the province and contribute and enjoy it and love living here like I do. Anyway, a couple of quick words that might be positive in your mind. Suncor tearing over the rig, the FPSO, pardon me, is making its way back. They, they think they'll be able to resume safe operations and production early next year. Hundreds of people who have been employed directly and indirectly with Suncor who, and for the first time in years, when they get back out there, it'll be the first time in years that all four oil-producing fields will be operating at the exact same time. All right, let's see. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're going to have a great show. I can feel it because you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board on line number one. Say good morning to local musician Rowan Sherlock. Good morning, Rowan. You're on the air. Good morning, Rowan on line number one. Davis, he potted up. Hi, Rowan. Are you there on line number one? We'll put him on hold. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Daryl Hines, the honest cobbler. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, just wanted to give you another one of those feel-good stories. Let's do it. Uh, I uh, started the Give Winter a Boot campaign again yesterday. Tell the folks about it. I know what the program is, and it's super stuff that you're doing. So what exactly is it? Well, I collect used or gently used shoes and boots. Uh, I inspect them and do some minor repairs that need to be done, and then I donate them to uh, the Salvation Army and the Gathering Place and anybody else who needs them. How many pairs were you able to put out the door for those who needed it last year? Well, last year we collected over 2,000 pairs of boots and shoes. Wow. And uh, it was we. There were some that we had to throw away, of course, just just not repairable. But uh, overall, it was just amazing, and uh, I'd say it was well over eighteen hundred that were actually put in people's hands. I mean, it's terrific what you're doing, and I know that you're not uh, telling us for any pats on the back. But how much time and effort did it take you to receive, to inspect, maybe to help repair slightly some of these eighteen hundred pairs that made it out the door? Well, it, uh, it, it, it did take, it was a lot bigger of an undertaking than I ever anticipated because uh, it wasn't only just for the city. And everybody was coming right uh, all across the province and bringing in shoes. And with the help of my, uh, my daughter that uh, <laughs> collected most of everything, and then she'd do the, the inspecting and put things away on the side to uh, be uh, repaired or, or polished or disinfected. And with the, the great help of Edge Contracting, they supplied uh, boxes for me and uh, and in their personnel to uh, help deliver the boxes. I mean, there was several times where we had a van load right to the gunnels full of boxes for both the, the Wiseman Center, the Center for Hope, and, and the Gathering Place. So it, it was uh, quite the... 
the undertaking. Now, this year is going to be great because I have partnered up with uh, the great girls from Calon Beauty and Glow. They uh, they have a, their shop is upstairs above my shop, and uh, so they volunteered to help me now start uh, just, uh, organizing and packing up and help distribute the, the boxes along with age. Now we don't want to be we don't want to see the honest cobbler be the depository for boots or shoes that are absolutely not fit for passing on to someone else. But I know you're located right here on Pippi Place. So ten is it? Ten Pippi? Ten Pippi Place. Yep. So when do you start to welcome donations? Uh, uh, we started yesterday. Terrific. And people are actually even coming in already now. All th- we stopped last year uh, in April. And uh, people just kept coming in with shoes and boots uh, all year long. I certainly wouldn't turn anybody away. And when we had the dev- devastation in Port Abbas and on the West Coast and surrounding areas, uh, they were doing a donation and, and collection. So I managed to uh, donate another 33 boxes of shoes for men, women, and children. Uh, I think you're doing great stuff, Gerald. I really appreciate you telling us about it. So, folks, if you look in the closet, the storage room, the basement, and you've got some gently worn winter boots or shoes or anything else, if you want to make them, put them to good use, 10 Pippi Place, say good afternoon or good morning to Daryl Hines. He's the honest cobbler, and he'll make sure they find their way to the feet for those who need them. I really appreciate this this morning. Keep up the great work, Daryl. Thanks, Patty. You have a great day. The very same appreciate to you. It. All the best. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Love that program. Okay, let's see here. Let's go to uh, line number two. Kelly, you're on the air. What's going on here with the phones? Uh, Let's try another one. Line four, Kelly. Kelly, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, Hi. Uh, I think it was last week a gentleman had called in um, regarding his experience with Talia's and Family Services. Um, I've been thinking about it for the past week ever since he called in because you can hear, you know, um, how upset he was, mad he was. But, and I know there's a lot of horror stories out there, and there's a lot of good foster care, and there's a lot of good social workers. I just wanted to remind everyone, even though you hear the horror stories, to please still advocate for, advocate for children and still make referrals. If you're nervous about calling Chinese some family services, um, you know, educate yourself on the signs of abuse so that you know that you're a little bit, you, you think that you're certain, you know? Um, just don't let the horror stories kind of override the thought process of I'm not going to call. What if they get taken away? And But like, still advocate for children and make those referrals. And do it with a clear mind Absolutely. and a clear conscience yeah. and be very careful. And, you know, it's not a phone call to be made out of spite or retaliation Absolutely. or revenge. But unfortunately, we know that stuff does happen out there, and that's really terrible but if you would notice the signs of abuse and there's lots of ways to find that out there's lots of organizations that can Mm -hmm. help educate you in what to look out for you know teachers get these kinds of warning signs uh, uh, taught to them and I think we could all play a role in advocating for the safety of children there's no doubt about it so whether it be miles for smiles for instance Bev Moore Davis and some of her not only personal experience but some of the presentations she makes but please do indeed care and think about and want to protect children but do it for all the right reasons, not for anything Absolutely. personal. Because I hear those stories too, and they really shake me to the foundation. But, yeah, child protection is extremely important. Of course it is. One thing inside of that portfolio in social work is because it's so traumatic, because the caseload is so enormous, 
that unfortunately, when seniority kicks in, many senior social workers will choose a different portfolio inside the department, and then we have very new or green or recent uh, social work grads taking on this most difficult task. So I, I like the message, Kelly, but do it again with a clear conscience and do it for the Absolutely. right reasons. Absolutely. And, you know, yes, um, educate yourself on the signs of abuse, you know, so that you know what you're talking about and do it with a clear conscience. Also, would you mind if I make one more point? You were talking about immigration. No problem. It's also, it's also important when we talk about, um, you know, the, the, the people coming over from Ukraine and we have um, a lot coming over and we talk about housing and jobs. Also advocate for... Um, child care for their children um you know they're coming over they're looking for jobs right now for subsidies from for daycares um you either have to be uh, working or going to school so and they're not doing either right now as they come over but these children need to get back to a normal life they need socialization they need their little to make little friends you know um so we need to advocate for a day child care fees paid for them as well yeah because uh, i don't know if everyone is aware but the particular path that these these ukrainians have to come to canada does not include a lot of the supports that are available for other refugees most because of the fast tracking of the process so they don't get the support that others get now the province does indeed between the province and the association for new canadians and others individuals and church groups they are doing their level best to find them a place to live. I know many of them are living in hotels at this moment in time, and that can't last forever. It's not good for the immigrant, let alone the province or anybody else. But, yeah, there's got to be a lot of different supports because a lot of them are going to like it here. A lot of them are going to stay here. Canada is the, has the second largest concentration of Ukrainians in the world outside of Ukraine and Russia. So Ukrainians are coming. They're going to like it here, we hope. They're going to stay. They want to work. They want to learn the language. They want to be part of the community. And they need those types of supports. Of course they do. And when people say, well, what about everyone here who needs the supports? In my personal opinion, we can do both. We can. It takes the effort. It takes the community to play a role, individuals to latch on to it. It does indeed take some creativity from the province and the association, but I'm glad you called this morning uh, on this. Kelly, would you like to say anything else? Um, this is the seven-year anniversary of our adoption of our little boy, so that's another reason why I decided to call in today because there are some really good, there's terrible stories, but there's also some really good stories as well in so, regards to um, child use of family services and adoptions and foster homes. Yeah, I told a story yesterday about, a, I believe a lady whose name is Angela Quinn. She had fostered 25 children over oh the years. Oh, my gosh, yes, that's yeah. right. Yes. Remarkable. So yes. seven years yep. ago, how old was your little boy when you adopted him? Um, he came to live with us when he was five. We adopted him at seven, seven and a half, and he's 15 now. So today he's got your day. Well, it's a brilliant anniversary mm -hmm. to celebrate. What's his name? <laughs> his name is Curtis, Curtis Piercy. Curtis James Piercy. And how's he doing? <laughs> like, what does he do? What's he interested in? Oh, my goodness. Anything. He's very athletic. <laughs> so um, he's hoping to be a ski instructor, actually, this winter at Marble Mountain. Wow. Yeah, we haven't signed up for the ski instructor course. Um, so that's what he's hoping to do. Well, you wish him a happy gotcha <laughs> day for me, Kelly, and I appreciate Thank your you. time this morning. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Seven years ago today, Curtis was adopted by Kelly and family. Terrific. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, hopefully Rowan is there. He's a local musician. We've talked to Rowan in the past about what some of the musicians are seeing down in the George Street area. 
and other parts of the downtown regarding some of the violence that we have been talking about and we need to deal with. There's been a coalition struck. We'll get an update from Rowan right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's see. Try again. Line number six, Rowan Sherlock, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Uh, good, thanks. Good. Not bad. Good. Yeah. What's the update? So you and I, when we last spoke, we talked about what you and fellow musician giggers are seeing in the downtown area regarding the prevalence and the severity of violence. I know there's been a new coalition struck. What's the update? So there's been a couple of updates, and there's been I've been doing a good bit of work on this, trying to improve the situation for the musicians and the bar workers downtown. Um, I've spoken with the superintendent at the RNC. Um, I had a good long chat with her about some of the situations. Now, since I've spoken to you last, um, which was probably last week, I've actually had a lot of musicians reach out to me privately with some more situations that have happened to them with regards to being assaulted, having their their drinks spiked when they're out gigging or having their gear stolen. And some of these musicians, they're not just, you know, amateur musicians. These are, you know, big names, whether that makes a difference or not. But that is the situation. It's it's, it's happening to everybody right now. Um, and in discussions with the superintendent, one of the things she did talk about, and I did mention her to her myself, is that some people haven't been reporting these crimes. And she was kind of trying to say to me, well, you know, people really need to report these things, especially in the George Street kind of scene, because with modern day policing, as we know, a lot of this is built on statistics. And the more statistics that they have where they can see where the hotspot crime rate areas are, then policing will be focused there. Now, I do agree on that in in some aspects, absolutely, and that, that, that is a thing in this day and age. However, a lot of the situations is that people don't bother reporting these crimes because they don't generally don't get a fast enough response in the first place. Um, and I've gone through that situation myself recently with a crime that occurred and we attempted to make a report and it took four weeks for this report to be made on the crime. And it actually, in fact, it, it took so long that the crime really couldn't be investigated um, appropriately at that stage because because what had happened had kind of passed on um now four week wait is a bit of a long time for for a crime that has occurred and this kind of is a repeating thing that i'm hearing from other musicians as well or bar workers as well saying that they have called the police for a situation and it just hasn't been responded to it happened to myself a few weeks ago i actually called 911 when i witnessed a man being assaulted he was being beaten pretty badly on duckworth street and I sat there and I called the RNC to make the report and told them this is happening right now. And I waited and waited and nothing happened. Now, that's kind of, it's a bit worrying at times, you know, um, and that kind of leads to a couple of a couple of avenues with, with the situation here, which must be whether there's an understaffing situation with the RNC or something else. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, so that's, that's one thing that has happened over the past week. Um, and I hope to keep in contact with the superintendent and see kind of what the updates are and whether more policing can be provided to George Street or not. Um, I'm not sure. Now, she was, she said that, you know, they do do a, uh, the horse patrol walks up George Street on a pretty regular basis. But I mean, when that happens is generally kind of during the light in the daytime is because the horses don't patrol at nighttime. So that's really not much use to us. Um now, I did receive an email about this 
downtown safety coalition that has been put together by, it's kind of an amalgamation, it's through the RNC, but it's with um, assistance from City of St. John's, Destination St. John's, um, the George Street Association, as well as Music NL. Now, there's a meeting planned to take place at some stage in January, apparently, um, which is a little bit too late, in my opinion. Apparently, this has been put together since last summer. So I'd really like to know kind of what's what's happened since then and now, and all of a sudden to spark this. I presume it's because of all these discussions that the likes of you and I have been having. Um, so I have been in contact with Destination St. John's, and I've been in contact with the George Street Association, and I've requested my involvement in these meetings um, to be a voice for the musicians and the downtown workers. As you know yourself, committee meetings are one thing and talk is something, but we do need to see some sort of action. And I'm hoping to be a voice for the musicians and the downtown workers and in relaying the information that happens from these kind of meetings and tell people, okay, well, this is what they talked about, this is what the plan is, and this is what we're hoping will happen. Um, in response from George Street Association, they just told me to wait, basically. Um, they, they didn't... They didn't confirm whether they could have a meeting with me or if I could be involved in this coalition meeting. They told me to wait for an email from Music NL that's coming next week about information about this meeting. So that was kind of a... I kind of got brushed off with that, which kind of annoyed me a little bit. Um, and I have had no response yet at all from Destination St. John's, which is also disappointing in itself. Um, I am in discussions with the CEO of Music NL at the moment, and she's hoping to have a sit-down meeting with me at some stage. But in general, it's been frustrating up to this point. It's just been the words committee and meeting has just been thrown around so much. And generally when that happens, we know that not much is going to happen. Um you know, and I'm really trying to prevent that it's not just going to be talk. We've had things and situations happen in St. John's before which have been brought up with the City of St. John's and other other uh, groups which have formed committees and stuff and then nothing's happened. Yeah, committee work is important, but it has to result in action items. But the groups Absolutely. that you mentioned that are involved, it's collectively in their best interest to see what they can do actively to reduce the amount of violence in the downtown core, whether it be Destination St. John's and tourist experience, whether it be musicians and or patrons, bar owners, everyone concerned yeah. really needs this to be stemmed as best possible. So, a quick pick up on a point you made. I know people get frustrated, so someone robs something out of your vehicle and you don't report the police because you think they're not going to do anything. Your point is absolutely spot on in that if the reports are not issued and uh, complaints aren't filed, they don't get added to the data, which then results in maybe not as much in the way of police presence and or staffing at certain days and hours that we need. So please yeah. make the report anyway. Okay, now question for you. If you were included, because police presence is one thing, which can be somewhat influenced by committee and action items, but maybe not necessarily, what do you bring to the table for a voice representing musicians about what you think can or should be done to help? Well, my, my point of trying to be being a voice for these committees is that the members of these committees generally don't visit George Street. They're not down on George Street at the times of the night that we are and where these situations are happening. They don't understand from a personal standpoint a lot of the time um, the actual feelings that these musicians are have, having, the worry that they have and the situations they're being put under. There's only so much that you can tell people over an email that I want to be able to tell people, well, look, this happened on Thursday, just to let you know, and it happened on this street and it happened this time. 
and it's happening again and again and again. Um, I, I, I really want to be involved in this. Um, I have a vested interest, not only for myself, because I'm, I'm working on George Street between two and seven nights a week, but so are 90% of my friends. And I have people close to me who've been assaulted or, or been affected by, by the crime that's happening down there, and it needs to be fixed up pretty soon. Now, there was another discussion that was made on, on CBC last night by a member of the George Street Association on a news article, and he discussed the lack of taxis as being an issue. Now, we all know about the situation. It's been, it's been beaten to death at this stage that there is a lack of taxis. But I'm not going to say that the lack of taxis is the root cause of crime. I mean, that's, that's foolish to say that. People should be able to walk home or walk anywhere without being assaulted. And you can't say that because there's, oh, because there's no taxis, we're being assaulted and mugged. That's, that's foolish. Crime is crime. It's not, it's not because of a lack of taxis. Sure, there, there's going to be a situation where you know, you're waiting around a little bit longer than usual if there's no taxis. But we can't put a blame on something like that because that's not, that's not a blame. Um, and it's just it's it's starting to get to a stage now where nobody's really admitting that what the core root of the situation is, and it is the fact that there's a lack of police presence in town. Um, and everybody's beating around the bush with this, and nobody's going to say it out loud for some reason, and I don't understand why. Um, this, as I said, this coalition was set up last summer, and they're now planning a meeting in January. That's that's a long period where nothing has happened. Um, and still nobody really knows when the meeting's going to happen, if it's going to happen, or, or what the outcome of it's going to be. I'm really trying to my best to keep on top of this. Um, I don't want this to just disappear in the new year and, and become a non-issue again. And then for eventually something maybe more heinous to happen, for this just to kind of spark interest again. Because this, this isn't a flash-in-the-pan type thing. I mean, I, I was down on George Street last night, and it, it needs to be fixed ASAP. Of course it does. I know many people, say, for instance, around my age, we used to go to the gigs all the time. It was one of the things we looked forward to on a Friday night was to catch whatever band or multiple bands throughout the course of the evening, do a bit of bar hopping. Yeah. And now I really have zero interest. I'd love to see the shows, but I'm not in the mood to potentially either witness or be involved in any of these types of our acts of violence. So police presence yeah. is one thing. Lighting the place up a little bit better is another thing. Yeah. Cabs is another thing. But, I mean, root cause issues regarding poverty and drugs is really yeah. driving this stuff. So I, I know the drug conversation becomes quite difficult. But when I was a teen, the types of drugs that people got hooked on that turned them into addicts were much different than the synthetic garbage that is literally turning people into zombies, yep. making them, pushing them to places where they never would have thought they'd end up in their life. Regardless of their yep. level of addiction, is their want and their willingness to get the fix through crime. And if exactly. we don't start with that, I think we're going to light the place up, put cabs on every corner, and people walking the streets, and cops on horses, and it's not going to make a row of beans difference until we get to some systemic issues. But Rowan, I'm going to stay on top of it as well. I surely hope that your voice is included. If you're familiar with it and you're representing the, your fellow musicians downtown, why wouldn't we include all hands who are concerned, have ideas, and want to play an active role? Exactly, yeah, that, that, and that's my point exactly. They, they need a voice from, from the ground to, you know, I'm not, I'm not, trying, to, not trying to kick up anything. I'm, I'm just trying to help people as much as I can with this, and if I can be the voice, then, then wonderful. Terrific. Good to have you on, Ron. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye.
Uh, okay, let's take a break. Now, I mentioned Angela Quinlan yesterday and again this morning when talking with Kelly, who fostered and then adopted her son, Curtis. Uh, and so Angela Quinn fostered 25 children over the course of her life. She's 100 years old now. Judy's on line number one. She was a foster child in Angela Quinlan's home. We're going to speak with her, and then we're going to talk some aquaculture and then get an update on a surgery with Kelly on 8. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Judy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks. How about you? Good. Thank you for having me on. This is the first time I've called in. Welcome. I listen to the show regularly. I really appreciate that, and I'm glad you made time for us this morning. So I've mentioned your uh, your foster mom or your mom a couple of times in the last couple of days. So you were yes. first fostered by Angela Quinn. Take us back to the beginning. How old were you and what was going on? Well, there was three of us. I had lost my mom uh, when I was two years old. So there was my older brother. He was four, and then my younger brother was newborn. So there was three of us uh, that went into the home. But um, when Angela took the families in, there were always siblings. Like there was always two sisters or brother and sister. Or, so they tried to keep the families together. And um, But she was, uh, you said it's hard to believe. Well, I lived it, and I find it hard to believe what she did over the years. She was so innovative. I mean, she was an entrepreneur living in working in non-traditional her whole life. And she kept everything going. Uh, the farm that she had, it was it was huge at that time. And it was two horses, two pigs. It was eight or nine cows and bulls. There was sheep. There were goats. They used to go pick up a hundred broilers, like little chickens and little turkeys, and raise them. And then they would sell so many. There'd be so many to go to the deep freeze, and then the rest she would sell. Uh, berries. She used to pick uh, blueberries. Now, she wouldn't go just around the gardens anywhere close. She would go down towards the cliff, down towards the salt water, because nobody would go down there to pick the berries, so she knew that's where she would get lots. She would sell them to Tim Hortons. She would sell them to uh, restaurants, and she would sell them to local people as well, the blueberries and the uh, partridge berries. She had gardens of greens, I mean gardens, and she would get up in the morning, pick those, clean them, and bring them with her when she worked in the fish plant in Whistler's Bay. This was the start of her day. Now, before she picked the greens, she would have went out and took care of the animals. I don't know when she had time to sleep because she was steady going. It was just one thing after another. She would always have your meals, like Sunday, Jig's dinner would be on the table at 12 o'clock. Again, before that, she would be gone out to tend to the animals. And when we were small, there was no, like the washer, it was an old ringer washer. This is what she used to use to wash the clothes for everybody and then hang it out on the line. And even in the wintertime. It was freezing. The clothes, we'd go up and pick it off the line, and it would just be frozen solid. She, we had wood stoves. So they would, well, we would go in the woods and, and cut the logs and everything, but then at the end of it, they would just buy the loads of, truckloads of wood, and she would go up in the garden for hours and just split the wood, bring it down, lay it against the house, 
in stacks and stacks for the wood stoves for the winter. And um, as far as the foster children, it wasn't just foster children that she had. It was other people's children, like other family members. If, If somebody was going through a difficult time or if the child was going through a difficult time, the child would end up here for a week or two weeks or maybe even several months. And uh, the house was always full. There was always friends, family here. It was just constantly full. I look at it now, I don't know where everybody slept, but they always managed to sleep somewhere. And they always managed to come back over and over and over again. And um, she used to make... She'd uh, milk the cows, have fresh milk, fresh butter, her homemade bread. That's after traveling down the States everywhere because after her husband died, then she started to do a bit of traveling. And um, she would always take her pans with her. (laughs) And she would smuggle across the salt beef in the suitcase, (laughs) bring it with her. So she could cook the jigs, dinner, everything she needed, and make the bread wherever she went. And I say, you're not allowed to do that. She said, no, no, that's all right. Nobody's going to care about that, right? But <laughs> it was hilarious. And she managed to get it down there, and then she would, they would take the pictures and send them back, right? But uh, the stuff that she did, and she'd be like the roof. She would get up on the roof and tear the roof every year. And she would also tear the roof of the stable. And the stable, there was a, a peak, a pointy, I forget what it's called, the, the stable. And, I mean, it was dangerous. But, I mean, to her, it didn't matter, right? It was just, and she never complained. It was just everything she did, it was never, oh, my God, I got to go do this. Or, oh, my God, I got to do that. Or It was always just go out and do it. And it was work. And it was not like, oh, well, this is men's work, or it was none of that. I mean, she just, she laid flooring, she put up fences, she, there was nothing to see her with a, a hammer in her hand, chainsaw in her hand. She would have the side and go out uh, cutting the hay, because we had fields and fields and fields of hay. And, um, but it was absolutely nothing that she couldn't do. And if you told her she couldn't do it, well, that was it. She had to do it then because she had to prove you wrong. Sounds like a remarkable woman. What role did the foster kids play? Were you out there milking the cows and tending the gardens and picking berries and making jam and washing clothes? What were you doing? We did it all. You did it all. That's, of course you did. We, we did it all. And that's how we learned to do so many different things. And we didn't know the different. Like, we, we grew up in a, a lifestyle that it wasn't, you know, well, little girls did this and little boys did that. I mean, it was work. It was just called work, and you did it, right? And um, whatever we could do. And we started young. Like, I mean, she was 11 years old when she went out taking care of a family, and that family taught her how to make bread. And she uh, went to work. After she left there, she went to work in St. John's, and as they call it at that time, in service. And then from there she went to Argentia, and she worked in a restaurant up there, and that was when the war was on. So they had to work in the nighttime because they had they couldn't have the lights on with the bombers and everything going overhead. So it, uh, they had the windows painted black. And uh, from there she had found out about a family here that's, 
needed someone to take do houseworking and care for family members. And that's where she came to uh, work in Holyrood. And after that family had passed away, she had married their son. And that's where she lived for uh, right up until she moved into the home. And she, right now she's at Tobin's Guest Home in Holyrood, and uh, she loves it over there. I mean, you couldn't get a better a better place. Tobin's is excellent. It's a model for any home in the province, and the workers are unbelievable. I'm really pleased to hear that she's doing well. I suppose you have, and I'll ask this question anyways, do you ever think back as to what might have happened to you and your siblings had you not been all under one roof or maybe ended up in some terrible foster homes or passed around? So do you ever have those thoughts, my God, how lucky was I? Well, we all do because there have been horror stories of children in foster care, but there hasn't there has been so many stories that are good stories that's successful stories that children have been brought up in homes that have succeeded and it was because of where they were raised i mean i would never have been able to do the things that i could do if i had not been raised here and i had other family members like uh, the other foster children i mean they're may not be my blood, but they are definitely my sisters and brothers. I mean, we think the world of each other. I mean, we're really close. So I know that, and the other, I mean, my two grandmothers, their husbands had died. My grandfathers had died. All happened within one month, and uh, they couldn't take, they couldn't take us because they had small children of their own. So it uh, it definitely could have uh, not worked out favorably, but I was lucky that I was raised here, and uh, I'm forever grateful and for what uh, she did. Well, I, I, I'm I'm just amazed with the stories, to be honest with you, and I'd love to meet Angela Quinlan someday. Um, so when you eventually you become an adult and you move out, what's what's taking place in your life? Where are you? What's what's going on? Well. I got, because of the way that I was raised, I didn't really realize, I was a little bit naive and didn't realize that the world was possibly raised the same way. I didn't know that there was any stigma about women in non-traditional work and all that kind of stuff. So that was the area that I got into. I uh, I worked for the government for a bit and I uh, didn't like that and I moved away to Ontario and I went to work for a company that sold solariums and greenhouses and that company is still in existence and I got a taste at uh, at working in construction so I when I come back that's what I got into I started uh, building some houses and renting properties and buying and selling a bit of land and um, I opened up a daycare at uh, one point and uh, ran a daycare in Holyrood for several years but I I uh, sort of like a jack of all trades master of none <laughs> had my hands in a lot of different things but was non-traditional mm-hmm. and at that time it wasn't uh, I didn't realize that it wasn't really 
favorable. So I got myself in a bit of trouble with that. And not to pry, and not that it makes a difference one way or the other, but do you have a family? I have, yes. I'm a single mom with four children. Um, three of my children are away on the mainland. Uh, my two daughters are working in nursing, and my other daughter is in St. John's doing her RN right now. Okay. And my son is working with a large company uh, in construction in uh, Calgary. So they're all doing uh, they're all doing well, uh, and they adore and worship the ground that Angela walks on. Rightfully so, Judy. It's been absolutely lovely to have you on the show. And when you next see Angela, uh, I don't know if she knows the show from a hole in the ground, but oh, she knows the show. Oh, well, you make sure <laughs> that you tell her that I was so pleased to have you on the program. I hope she's doing well and enjoying her time at Tobin's. And uh, wish her the very best of the holiday season. Merry Christmas and the best of love for me and Dave and everyone here. Thank you so much. And uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family and everybody in the show. You're doing great work. It's really appreciated. It's awesome for the province. Judy, thank you so much for your time and the kind words. Have a Merry Christmas to you and yours. Stay in touch. Thank you. You too. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, there you go. (laughs) More of that, please. Uh, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. <laughs> uh, that was great. Did you like that, Dave? All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number 8. Good morning, Kelly. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind, Kelly? Uh, I'm the lady that uh, called in in October uh, who uh, was in St. Clair's Hospital on uh, the 24th of October and uh, was admitted and my surgery was cancelled. So I thought I would give you an update because it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, My surgery is done. Within a week I'm home. I got the utmost professional care. Uh, they had a very successful day. The day I was there, I was admitted at 7. All surgeries went ahead that day. And you can really appreciate, like, people need to be patient. Your time will come. When you get there, you're treated awesome. But they are so busy. I had a special care room. Uh, it was just three of us. We had our own respiratologist coming all night long. We had nurses. And uh, I was by a window, and it really makes you appreciate and realize that they are doing the best they can with a broken health care system. There was ambulances outside my bedroom window that did not stop from the time I was admitted to that room till I got left, uh, till I got discharged the following day. There was people admitted going by my room because I was in a special care room. Everything went by that room uh, all night long. And uh, it was amazing, under a system that's so broken, how well organized and how well we were all taken care of. And I, I just wanted people to know, like, hang in there. There's lots waiting for surgeries and our families and friends, but once you get there, you're good to go. Uh, you know, I appreciate the positive update. I'm glad that you've had your surgery and you're at home on the mend. And, you know, it's 
it's difficult for me to tell people to be patient, even though I think it quite often when we hear these calls. But the level of anxiety and worry that people feel and face when they're waiting for a surgery and how their family feels and waking up every day is today I, the day I get the call. So I'm glad you called with this message of positivity and patience. And hopefully people can latch on to it. And like most people, the problem is getting into the system. Once you get in there, for the vast majority of patients, they get the bedside manner, the care and the treatment that yep. they deserve, and they get positive outcomes. And I'm really glad that you called with your story this morning. So I assume you're on the mend. I gave you the on the, on the mend tag. Yes, I'm on the mend. I just have to wait for results and see what uh, comes next. I'll be probably back St. John's like for a check in, in two months' time. And this has been ongoing and uh, for me since March. I, I got sick later in January, but by March, uh, like I knew there was something going wrong with the left side of my neck, and uh, everything has uh, been done. And 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 you need a lot of patience. I've realized that I've got to be uh, really patient because uh, I mean it's um, so much coordination, even just for one person to have something done. The coordination and and they don't and they don't have the staff and and like they don't have the beds. So when I got to recovery, they said. Uh, they never had a bed, and all I said was I didn't get upset. I said, uh, well, just call my sister and call my husband so nobody's worried. And eventually they said it could be 20 minutes, it could be a couple hours. And I put my hand up and realized I still had a voice box, which I could have very well lost through all this. And I was so thankful that I didn't say anything, and, and I said thank you very much, and I know I'll be taken care of, and now that I'm in there, like, it's, and I got it done, I mean, things happen. And uh, I had, I, like I said, I was put in a special care room, the best kind, of, best kind of treatment, and I only waited, I suppose, two or three hours for the bed, but, I mean, uh, they're busy. I didn't really, I don't think I appreciate it, Really, what's going on with the healthcare system until I got involved in it this past eight months myself and and what goes on because I tell you they never stopped one five minutes from the time I was admitted at seven in the morning like till the next day i, I don't i don't and the nurses will come in relieve each other and like it was just non stop because uh, it's full there. It's full, constantly full, and yes, you're always waiting for beds, but your time will come. And I'm only hoping that, like a lot of the ones that were there, because it's still canceled days, and I'm hoping and praying that everybody that's waiting and they get in soon, sooner than later. But they got to hang in there, and I know, I know it's hard, but uh, uh, we got to realize too that we need to be patient with them and not get upset because. Uh, they really can't help it. I I really seen that they doing the best they can under a system that's uh, and now there's more sicknesses out there. So while I was out there, they had a lot of issues from the Janeway, and people were trying to even get in different emergency departments. And and there's a lot of viruses out there right now because they said the best for me was to get out as soon as I could because there's so much. COVID right there, and there's a, a flu viruses and whatnot, and they're dealing with all of that. So, like, uh, I only hope that my phone call today gives some people some hope because they'll eventually get to us. <laughs> they promised me that, and they eventually get to us. And there's a lot of days you got to stay home. I stayed home 8 to 4 every day for months for phone calls because if you miss your phone call and you never got back to them, there was probably someone else in your place. So if that's what you got to do, that's what we got to do. <laughs> Kelly, they're doing their part, and I feel they did their part now, and now I'm, now I'm to do my part. 
Well, good on you. Uh, even though you got the top quality treatment uh, that you deserve, could you sense the burnout, especially amongst the nursing staff? Because I hear those stories as much as I hear anything else in this world. I got to be honest. They they were awesome. I was nervous, I'm going to tell you, because when I went out there and spent about a week out there last month, and they as much as gave me medication at 10.30 in the morning, okay, mm-hmm. and said that they were getting me at 11. I'm a lady that only needs a scattered ibuprofen. was very nervous about taking pills that are 500 milligrams and something else and all that because I it makes me woozy. I never needed it. Okay, they never got my surgery done. And I tell you, when I got home and my surgery wasn't done, I I was very nervous about the care I was going to get because I thought everything was going through my mind. Like, if they can medicate you, is the communication broke down out there? Like, they can medicate you, tell you they're getting you at 11. There's nothing left, only an anesthetic and put on your hospital gown. Are they capable of taking care of me? I'm going to tell you, I had a breakdown when I got back. My husband wasn't feeling the greatest either. I was totally traumatized because now I not only had to worry about I got cancer, I'm not getting done, or, like, when is, what's going on, me not knowing. I, I was then, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie, right up until... I woke up Friday past. I had major anxieties. My blood pressure's been up. Never had trouble in my life because I was now nervous that they couldn't take care of me and they were burnt out and communication was broke down. I thought that everything was gone. Like, And I never thought when I got sick that I had to worry about these things. Now, I had blood pressure trouble, but as the night progressed, it dropped, and now it's good. But I have to say, i never even seen the signs of burnout. I've got to be honest. They were so efficient, so pleasant. Everything was done on time. There was nothing left. Like, there was, you never had to ask for anything. Like, everything was done, because I was nervous. Like, I'm a diabetic. Am I going to get my needles on time? Things going to go right? Or the, like, like this system, I thought, like, I wasn't going to go back. i got to be honest. It took a lot for me to go back again. Well, I wasn't going to go back. I was afraid that they couldn't take care of me, that they were so burnt out and something was lacking, that I was going to be sicker than I actually am now. And that's how I felt. Well, I'm glad that those fears were allayed. I, I had to, I've had my share of anxieties and whatnot and, uh, over all this, right? But uh, it all worked out in the end, and I got to say, no, I haven't, I didn't see. Uh, and now, in saying that, they have to be burnt out. There's no way that they can't be because it's just full out there like just everything is full mm-hmm. right down to I'm not just saying nurses and doctors you're talking the Eastern Health Facility where I stayed they don't have five minutes to yourself once you're at a room there's somebody in there and you got all supports and, and then you go to the cafeteria the lineups are horrendous the cooks the cleaners like when my bed was in special care they needed my bed right away right and i got used to the ones that was in my room so uh, she's from labrador and i lived there so i asked her how it went my room was professionally cleaned as fast as that somebody was in it so they had to be burnt out there, there's no there's they don't have any breaks nobody out there had any breaks right down to the ones that stocks the tim hortons because the hospital is so full everything is full Capacity, every single healthcare facility in the province, and I would suggest likely across the country. Kelly, I'm glad that you made time for the program this morning, and I'm really pleased that you got the treatment that you deserve while you were in, and the procedure went well, and you're on the mend. Stay in touch, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. And same to you. Thank you very much. Take good care. Bye.
Right, bye uh, It is break time. When we come back, the executive director of the Newfoundland Aquaculture Industry Association, that's Jamie Baker, he's in the queue. And as everybody knows, it's not Christmas time until Shelley Neville sings Oh Holy Night. Her annual Christmas concert is coming up soon. We'll hear from Shelley after this as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at the Newfoundland Aquaculture Industry Association. That's Jamie Baker. Hi, Jamie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's great to talk to you. Uh, you've got a nice little run of feel-good stories going there this morning. Hopefully, I can continue that trend for you a little bit. Please do. Okay, so yesterday I actually was my first uh, first year in the position here at NIA. It's been a, an interesting year getting to meet all the people and uh, see all the operations. But I got quite a nice gift yesterday. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't related to my anniversary, but it certainly fell at a time. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Collar Fair uh, Index. The Collar Fair Index basically looks at the largest protein-producing companies in the world, and it assesses them uh, under 10 different uh, sustainability criteria, environmental, social, governance. So we're talking about things like greenhouse gas emissions, deforestation, animal welfare, all the things that, you know, that uh, fit, factor into the sustainability equation. And uh, the new report was released yesterday by Collar Fair, and uh, the number one and two companies in the world uh, in terms of sustainability, according to Collar Fair, are Moe and Greek. And you'll be familiar with those two because both of those companies have operations here in Newfoundland. Uh, this is really a remarkable designation, um, and everybody's really excited about it. And I think it really speaks to the work that's been done uh, in the sector in the last number of years to improve sustainability on all levels. So really exciting day yesterday. I was uh, pretty excited to tell you about it today, for sure. Uh, uh, pleased for the two companies. And it's interesting because I am familiar with that particular index and some of the other calculations it uses. And I wonder how that factors into evaluating or adjudicating uh, aquaculture in those two companies for the awards. Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's also about animal welfare, and there's always thoughts about the crowded pens. It also includes, I believe, antibiotics and the use of antibiotics, which, of course, has been a concern offered by many regarding the practices of aquaculture, especially in open pen farming. Has anything changed on those fronts? Because those are two of the key concerns, and there's concerns regarding governance and what have you. You know, basically the government with a peaked interest in the industry, whether it be job creation and or, you know, the conversation regarding potential equity stakes. So has anything changed on the... The concept and the maybe the the aeration which caused massive die off for one of the MOE operations and antibiotics. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things I've learned in the past year about this sector is that everything changes on a daily basis. Uh, the amount of advancements and innovations that I've seen, even in the year that I've been here, on a number of factors, including some of the ones you've just mentioned, are really quite remarkable. You're talking about companies with a lot of resources that they can put towards a challenge. You're talking about uh, a province where we've got so much expertise in the marine field, whether it be academic, whether it be industry, whether it be sector. I mean, these are people who really can bring a lot to the table and help us understand some of the problems. I'll give you a great example, actually. One of the big uh, challenges in the sector, as everyone knows, is sea lice. Uh, sea lice is a naturally occurring thing. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to go down to the water to get our uh, water for boiling lobsters, and the first thing you notice when you pull it out of the water is the sea lice in there. So that's, they're naturally out there, but they are certainly quite a pest for, uh, for salmonid farmers. But one of the things that we've done in recent years is we've got this project using cleaner fish, uh, which most include lumpfish and conners, and what happens is we add those fish to the cages and they actually eat the sea lice. 
Now, we've, we've been trying this the past few years, and the success of this program has actually been so incredible that uh, Cook Aquaculture is going to be bringing uh, the lumpfish uh, technology to their other operations in places in Atlantic Canada and potentially the United States as well. So, yes, all this stuff on a constant daily basis, we're looking to innovate, we're looking to advance. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of myths perpetuated out there, uh, Patty, by uh, a lot of people. We've got some critics who I think are probably a bit out of touch uh, or whatever the case might be. But, I mean, on a daily basis, we're seeing people uh, really making a lot of great advancements on a lot of fronts. You talk about, for example, the quality of our, our cages. I mean, we just had a massive storm rip through the Atlantic region, and uh, so salmon farms were unaffected. I mean, what does that tell you? That tells you that good engineering, the standards are top shelf, um, the equipment being used is top shelf, as I said, on a daily basis, we're looking to looking to make sure we're addressing all these problems as they arise, and not only to meet standards, but to advance beyond the standards. And I think that's why we're so excited about what Collar Fair has, uh, has revealed this morning. Actually, seven of the top ten companies listed by Collar Fair are salmon aquaculture companies. Uh, on a couple of the issues that the industry has spoken to, whether it be there was a major escape there a couple of years ago, some of the days blur together with me now, there was a major escape that wasn't identified or acknowledged for a few days later, and then, of course, some of the effort to recapture is sort of futile because the fish swim. Uh, so those types of issues. Also, with one of the at least one of the mass die-offs, the conversation was about aeration. It was about making the pens deeper and having air in from the bottom so that we didn't have that tight congregation of fish and scrambling for uh, the bit of uh, oxygen. So has any of that happened? Because we had one mass die-off. We said that was to blame. Fluctuation of water temperature, that type of stuff, deeper pens, aeration. Then we had another one, and they said, well, maybe we need to do this. Have they done it? Yes, they have. Uh, all three companies on the aeration front have moved forward with different types of innovations to make sure that you do have proper oxygen content so that you can avoid uh, issues like that. I mean, obviously, as you know, Patty, probably better than anybody, the marine environment in Newfoundland is not like anywhere else in the world. And I think it takes some time uh, for uh, companies and experts to figure out just how it all works. But uh, they've got a good handle now on, on how all that kind of functions. So the aeration piece is, is looking fairly good. In terms of escapes, we haven't had a significant at-sea escape in many years now. Uh, a lot of that is attributed to the fact that the facilities uh, have been upgraded beyond even the standards. Uh, a good example is a lot of companies, for example, are starting to use what's called steel core netting in their facility. And what that is is a really strong form of netting that's resistant to most uh, marine activity and also marine predators. So these are the sorts of things that companies are spending money on. And we're not, we're not talking small price tags here. These are millions of dollars of investments in some cases uh, to make sure that, you know, we're being good stewards of the environment, to make sure we're responding to issues as they arise. Uh, we work closely with, uh, with regulators to make sure that we're meeting all the requirements that are there. We uh, deal directly with communities and people, and we want them to be comfortable with everything we're doing. Um, I, I think, and in terms of transparency, I mean, I don't think there's a sector anywhere that reports publicly to the level that we do. I mean, we report publicly right down to the last fish on an almost daily basis. So I think we're, we're making some great strides towards uh, having people feel really comfortable with what we're trying to accomplish here. And, and just all these impacts on these rural communities, I mean, it just can't be understated. I mean, it's really exciting, actually, to be part of the sector and see uh, all of the positive impacts that are happening in the last few years. Uh, last one before I run out of time. You know, the west coast of the country, there's a different approach to aquaculture and phasing out open pen farming in the bays. Even the companies you mentioned, Maui and Greg, or Maui, I'm not sure how you pronounce it properly, uh, both of those companies in countries where they come from and other operations around the world, 
they're moving towards on-land agricultural projects as well. But no mention of that here. I know there's an increased cost. I know there's a, a different water usage issue, which may indeed affect Collar Fair uh, standards on their index. So is that conversation even happening here? Because there's a real disparity between uh, off of BC's coast versus off our coast versus some other countries that are moving to uh, on-land versus open pen. What about here? Well, I think there's two parts to that discussion. One is if you look at what's happening on the West Coast, I think in Washington State in particular, uh, the situation you're seeing there is one where science stated unequivocally that farming operations were no threat to the ecosystem. That was backed up by the federal court in Washington. But what happened was uh, the person who makes the ultimate decision uh, was put in kind of a political position to do so. And I think here on the East Coast, for the most part, we've been guided by the science. And I hope that continues because I certainly wouldn't want us to ever get to a point where politics make decisions decisions about what we're doing in the ocean as opposed to the science. So we're very keen on the science piece. I think the other part, too, is that on the advancement sides, we're now looking at all sorts of different measures and containment measures uh, going forward that we can use in the ocean uh, to make our facilities even more resistant to issues. Um, we've, I think we've done a, a lot of great things in the last couple of years, and I don't think that process is going to stop. So I think in the next few years, you'll see companies testing new technologies and new containment systems and things that, well, A, be still responsive to the environment so we don't have an increase in carbon because we want to make sure we keep our collar fair standing. But at the same time, we're able to even further assure uh, people that the issues that we have to face are being better mitigated. Appreciate the time this morning, Jamie. Thanks for this. My pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Uh, Jimmy Baker is the Executive Director at the Newfoundland Aquaculture Industry Association. Okay, like I said, it's not Christmas time until you hear Shelley Neville sing Oh Holy Night, and she joins us on line number four. Good morning, Shelley. You're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. How are you this morning? Uh, really well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. So getting Great. jazzed up for your annual Christmas concert coming up at the Arts and Culture Center, December 20th and 21st. And I mentioned Oh Holy Night, and I've exchanged a couple of emails with our friend Krista Verdovsky, who I yes. really loved working with. And one of it was about the history of the song. Some of these stories date back as far as 1843. Tell us what you know about some of that history and one instance where Oh Holy Night actually brought some peace. Oh, well, I'm sure what you're referring to is the, um, well, the song was written in 1843. I think we're talking about when it was Christmas Eve and there was tension within the war. I mean, Oh Holy Night, as you know, is a French carol. Mm -hmm. So this was during the Franco-Prussian War. And a French soldier stood up on Christmas Eve in the trenches and sang Oh Holy Night. And it stopped the fighting. The Germans stopped. They listened. They ceased fire for a full 24 hours. And I know a lot of people have a similar story about Silent Night with the Germans. But as history states, um, it was Oh Holy Night that did that. And apparently the Germans sang one of their own German favorite carols back, which is just well, an amazing story. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, and that's what music does. I mean, it's, it's such a sharing. And a, even though, you know, in the world, we all don't speak the same language, we certainly are unique in our hearts. And music certainly is the thing that can bring everybody together. Absolutely right. And it's a way for me to soothe the savage beast after the show many days. <laughs> Shelly, so you've been doing this for quite a long time, and you're absolutely lovely and a terrific performer. And you've got a real family of friends that you've been doing business with and performing with and gone to music school with. And some of them are some of the most notable performers in the province. Yes, well, this year 
For the first time, uh, we have Petrina Bromley on the show. Now, Petrina, Peter Halley, and I went to music school together at Memorial School of Music and went throughout, you know, our whole time there together. And then we worked on different shows over the years together. Then, of course, Petrina had her big break and uh, off she went to Broadway for Come From Away. And we couldn't be prouder. I went to see her three times. And um, so Petrina's on the show. Corey Tetford, of course, you know, rocker from Newfoundland. He's coming down from Halifax to do the show. I hope he's Katie singing Amazing Power. Grace. Oh, I, isn't that something? It's yes, killer. Well, you know he is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Dave Palmore, international tenor from the Ghouls is on the show again just you know i mean and not only are these people uh, superbly talented they are their hearts are so beautiful they're just the nicest people as well um we have snook on the show this year dude a few little things with me patty is going to be a riot um peter halley of course my singing partner of 30 years is there with me and um lauda children's course i have a ukrainian pianist this year ala melanchuk that we've become great friends since she arrived on that first flight, and um, she's going to be playing piano. How did you meet her? <laughs> well, well, Bill Brennan is my musical director, I want to say that, but Ella's going to be uh, playing on the show as well. Well, I tell you how it, it all came down. She arrived here in Newfoundland on the first flight, the 166 Ukrainians that came, and she put an ad on Facebook Marketplace that she was looking to buy a keyboard because she had students um, all around the world, some students in Germany and students here and there, and she wanted to be able to to Zoom lessons with them and to keep that up. So she was looking to buy a keyboard and to practice. And I didn't have a keyboard to give her, but I did reach out to her and said, listen, I have a music studio in my home, and um, you are welcome anytime to come here and teach from my music studio and to practice. And so we got together. She came over with her fiancé, Lersha, and um, they came to the house. And, of course, my friends Peter Halley, Bonnie Lundgren, there was a few of us here. We had cake and we had coffee and we chatted and we made it to the music room and we sang some of our songs for her and for Lersha. And, you know, she burst into tears when she heard music. It was, She said, it's been, you know, so stressful with everything that's been going on. But again, music is the thing that will just unite hearts. And um, it was in that moment I thought, you know, I'm going to get her on the show because her story is so strong. Since then, they were they so they were engaged, her and Lucia, and I asked her what the dream was for the wedding. She said, I want to be married on the ocean, close to the ocean. I said, Ala, when do you want this to happen? She said, August 14th. Now, this was July 14th that we were talking about this. And um, call my friend Peter Halley, who is a commissioner. He performs wedding ceremonies. He has a place on the ocean in Lower Island Cove. I, you know, just organized it for her. I was her maid of honor. My boyfriend was the best man. We had a 10 people invited with a big 10-course meal. We got her a wedding dress. We got the wedding cake. And... Um, you know, I think when good people come together, just real miracles can happen. Magic. Uh, and we can't leave out your other musical family, your actual intimate <laughs> musical family. John and Johnny are going to be there. Oh, Dad and Johnny are going to be there. <laughs> I was just with Dad up at the cabin last weekend. And oh, my, we got surprises this year, Patty. Terrific. Dad is taking it. He's going to kick it up a notch. 
Yeah. Uh, listen, it's always going to be a wonderful concert with you and your fellow oh. big hitters. I mean, Corey and David Pomeroy, Petrina, and on and on it goes. It's just wonderful. So yeah. back from my Out of the Fog days, we know that the concert's coming up at the Arts and Culture Center, December 20th and the 21st. I don't know how many times I gave out this number. You can call the box office for your tickets at 729-3900. Break every leg in the house, Shelley. Thank you so much, Patty. Merry Christmas to you. Same to you. Okay, bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Uh, break time. When we come back, uh, there's a caller there has some accessibility issues with the phone services at the RNC. We're going to speak with John Harris. He's one of the directors, pardon me, he is the director of external affairs at Munsu as well. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Charlie, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. I thought there was somebody else coming on there. Uh, I wanted to, to, to mention first about a trifecta from last night. My Leafs won, and uh, Trump lost, and the Democrats won. Did you want to, me to elaborate on any, any of that? Well, I know what all of them mean. The Democrats, of course, won a Senate seat in a runoff down in Georgia. Warnock beats what was just an incredibly bizarre candidacy, which was Herschel Walker's. Uh, Trump endorsed candidates throughout the midterms, did very, very poorly. A lot of the so-called MAGA candidates did very, very poorly, whether it be Secretary of State or other House runoffs and Senate runoffs. And the Leafs, yeah, 7-0-3 in their last 10. Yeah, I know all about it. And Mariner extended his scoring streak. What a heater. He's on 20 games with a point for Mariner. He looks terrific out there. Uh, just for a little bit of context, only because I was thinking about it, looking at it yesterday, the point scoring streak, now 20 is super impressive. Number one point scoring streak was back in the 83-84 the season. 51 games, Gretzky. 46 for Lemieux, 39 for Gretzky. They're the top three. Yeah, it was easier back then, of course. I, uh, I'd like to say Mercer and Newark, our two uh, Newfoundland boys, are, are, are doing quite well. Uh, Not bad. To think the Leafs could have drafted uh, uh, Mercer, right? Yeah. Uh, on, on the Trump thing, I don't think you mentioned the, the, the court case regarding taxes and fraud and so on. Yeah, they found guilty of a variety of counts of tax evasion, fraud, whatnot. Yeah. Weisselberg was the key witness in that particular stuff. And, of course, uh, I, I think the former president is saying he never really heard of the organization. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. He, he's a funny guy. Uh, a couple of kudos to uh, the, the, the uh, food chain, I'm not sure the name of the store, in Marystown, that's giving waste food to food banks. I don't know if other stores in Newfoundland do that, but that's 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 quite something, I think. They do. There's some relationships with different grocers and different food banks and whatnot. And I believe the grocery store is uh, a no frills. I, I, I'm pretty sure I read that this morning. I don't know if I have it anywhere in front of me. But, yeah, we should formalize relationships between retailers, whether it be the Walmarts and the Costcos of the world and all the other grocery stores, large and small, to make sure that we throw as little as possible away. Food waste in this country is off the charts. It's ridiculous, whether it be at the commercial, industrial level, and even inside our households. I, I'm the leftover king. I mean, nothing goes in the garbage if I can help it. So we've got to formalize those relationships because look no further than the fact that food bank usage is up 27% year over year in this province. That's madness. It was already bad, and now it's worse. Food banks were initially created as a backstop, a one-off. Now they've become part of the social safety net. It is a distinct failure in governance that millions of Canadians need to go to a food bank. Yes, I, I, I'd shop there. If I, if I was in that area, I'd, I certainly wouldn't uh, go anywhere else with a program like that. 
I, I'd like to I'd like to send kudos to Tom, who comes on your show every every every, every uh, Tuesday. I think the guy uh, talks a lot of common sense and uh, appeals to the common good. I don't know how many people uh, listen to that, but uh, it's refreshing to hear somebody talk about the the common good as opposed to what's good for myself kind of thing, right? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I mean, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, the, the, the people of St. John's, uh, they've only got themselves to blame when taxes go up. Tom was one of the guys that uh, talked about uh, not raising taxes especially with uh, salaries and that going up like they do in that St. John's uh, uh, situation. And it seemed like uh, that didn't uh, that fell on, on, on a lot of uh, deaf ears. He would have been, the, the, I feel, the one guy on there who would have said, look, we can't afford to keep uh, raising these things every year as, as if it's a, a bottomless pit or a money tree out there. And uh, he keeps preaching that. I don't, I don't know how many people hear him. But anyway, did, did you want to comment on that? Well, I mean, some of his thoughts on it we've put to individual levels of government and their key representatives, like when we had Mayor Danny Breen on. We talked about in-house. Last time we've had an opportunity to speak with, whether it be Minister Cody or others, we talk about it's easy enough to look for revenue streams externally, but how about being very, you know, cut it close to the quick, as close as you can anyway, inside governments. And then even on the federal level. The braggadocia associated with job creation and unemployment numbers, when I had Christopher Freeland on the show, we spoke about exactly that. If 87% of the jobs created in the country over the last 18 months are with the public service, that's not job creation. That's putting ads in the paper. So we've talked with all levels of government about it because, I mean, I'm pretty sure I focus on it a lot on the program. You know, it's one thing to be there during the pandemic when, you know, we could have seen the poverty rate and bankruptcies skyrocket and recovery would have been brutal. But in more normal times... Governments have got to get their act together. Well, if they expect the, the, the general public to, to, to cut back and to total line, they've got to show it themselves. And it seems like that's one step they hardly ever do on a municipal level, provincial or federal, you know? Yeah. I'd, I'd like to... Uh, uh, the, the people in Portabasque and others on the southwest coast who have lost their homes... Uh, I'd like to, 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 to send my sympathy out there and understanding because it must be terrible to have to live somewhere else when you've lived all your life in a, in a home that uh, uh, you lost all contents and you no longer have that, have that privacy. It, it's kind of heartbreaking to see that. And when you hear some of your callers come on and uh, uh, talk about oil and talk about uh, climate change uh, policies as if suddenly it's being shoved down people's throats, uh, why are they, one, one caller said, why are they do, doing things so fast? Where, you know, as if, where, where did all this come from? It reminds me of educators back in the 90s who uh, talked that way. But anyway, uh, I think some of them need probably to be flooded out or to be have the roofs blown off uh, to, to, to really understand that this, this is uh, meaningful to people in a direct way, like, like these people are suffering now. And uh, I wish I wish they'd uh, think a little a little deeper on that and not be as callous. Uh, these this 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 is really uh, really bad for the Southwest Coast, you know. Anyway, it's that's the only dreadful. comment I, I want to leave you with. Okay, appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, sir. Thank Take care. You. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Uh, sure, I try to get on track here with the breaks. Please, uh, pardon me. I appreciate the patience of those in the queue. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the Director of External Affairs at Memorial University Student Union. That's John Harris. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hi. How's it going, Patty? Doing okay. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. What's on your minds? 
So, uh, yeah, just wanted to uh, touch base. I heard uh, Vianne Timmons, the president of Memorial, on the radio yesterday talking about the protest that, uh, that went on at the event last Friday. I uh, just wanted to talk about uh, how proud I was to see students stand up for uh, uh, tuition doubling and for uh, accessible education on Friday, where we presented a pink slip to Vianne uh, for failing to secure the uh, uh, post-secondary education funding from the uh, provincial government. And how does that work, realistically or pragmatically, for the president to secure funding? Because surely she and other leaders at Memorial University didn't want to do with 60-odd million less? I mean, you'd think, you'd think that, that, that uh, that'd be the case. But uh, from what we've been hearing from Vianne, uh, you know, just yesterday she was on, uh, or, or the day before she was on Anthony Germaine, she said the tuition freeze wasn't working for anybody. So, you know, we, we don't really have uh, a, uh, any support for uh, the president, uh, for, for uh, you know, the funding, getting the funding back from the government, from the president. The, the, the president of the university has been in lockstep with the provincial government on this. Uh, they've been a united front, and it really doesn't seem like to us that uh, she really cares that the $68.5 million is is being uh, taken away from the university. Okay, and I can't speak for her on that front. The uh, Let me bounce this off you. Yeah? And I know that the tuition freeze was sacrosanct, and any thoughts of talking about it was just a non-starter for many people at university. And look, I paid for my boys to go through, so I'm, I've am i got some skin in this game. Um, the tuition freeze at some point was going to come to an end. And what we saw was, as opposed to getting a tax break on tuition, we saw an increase in fees, and we didn't have any discussions about even minimal hikes in tuition, reflective of operational costs, what have you, 2% or whatever the number is, because that did not happen. And it was always, just my personal opinion, I've been talking about this for years, it was always going to come a time when the funding was either going to be cut off or decreased to the level where we would see all of a sudden explosion in tuition. Did we mishandle the tuition freeze overall, given where we are now? now I, I don't know if I agree with you there that there's a determinist uh, aspect to this. You know, we are the, uh, you know, students of Memorial and, uh, you know, we're the, the people of the province and we got to say on what we want to fund and what we don't want to fund. And uh, I think that the students have really been coming together. You've seen from our protest on against the provincial government uh, back all out in like 99. And you've seen throughout the history of our province and our, our student movement that students are ready to push and they, they want fully funded accessible education. Uh, and, you know, $68 million a year is a drop in the bucket when it comes to overall provincial uh provincial budget you know uh the provincial budget yes we're in you know turmoil as a province but cutting memorial isn't going to solve that you know we can't put the the debt of the province on the backs of our students in our future uh no argument there uh once again i do have skin in the game and one of my sons is still at memorial university the for me i mean i talk about it in these terms so when people are polled come election time what's of your primary concerns it's the economy and taxes and health care and the environment and criminal justice and on down the line and always well down, certainly when we talk about education as a provincial jurisdiction, education is always way down the line. When in fact, if education was everyone's primary concern, we would do better in health care and the economy and taxes and environment and all the way down the line. It's a funny skewed way we look at education and its importance. And there's zero argument coming from me that the better educated the populace is, the better chance we have of a viable, long-term, profitable province. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you there, Patty. Uh, you know, the $68.5 million cut per year is short-sighted coming from the Fury government. Uh, we, we really uh, uh, make 
you know, austerity decisions in times like these that come back to bite us in the butt. You know, there's there's not uh, going to be any good coming from this. Uh, really disappointed to see that the, the president of the university isn't standing with the, uh, the students on this one. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where we go from here. And I, maybe with the, we've had this facet of the conversation before. I would be loath to want any of these types of jobs. But how do we – so does it all fall back to the province? Because I know you're landing a lot of it in Dr. Timmons' office when, you know, the amount of money that the province forwards to or spends with at Memorial University – is very similar to the money that the government of Nova Scotia does, but they're funding 10 universities. So are you laying it on Dr. Timmons' office, or does the blame or the concern lie with Minister Cody or Premier Fiore or anybody else? I, I, I think they share the blame on this one, uh, Patty, because uh, you know we, we don't see any support coming from the, the administration office on this. Uh, they, you know, they, they talk out of two sides of their mouth when it comes to protests. The first they, you know, they they always like to say, oh, we love peaceful protests, you know, we encourage it. And then when peaceful protest actually does happen, like we saw on Friday, they turn around and intimidate, punish, threaten, uh, you know, that it's a really kind of authoritarian culture coming out of the, the, the administration's office that we're really disappointed to see. And uh, we're not getting any support on uh, uh, from the president's office, so, you know, they're the ones that double tuition. Yes, it was because of provincial uh, cuts, but they're they're working together in tandem on this one and coming out of this united front. So uh, we're 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 protesting both of them. The comment coming from Dr. Timmons, who obviously didn't hear around this program yesterday, was that she also says there's an expectation of appropriate decorum coming from protesters, whether they be actual formal members of the of Monsu or anybody else at the university or anybody else who cares about the university. She thinks that. She's not being treated with the level of respect and the type of decorum required, even in the setting like the report to the community, which was the issue that you're speaking to there. Do you what do you make of those comments? Well, that, that's the thing, Patty. When you have a report to community where basically, you know, we we uh, we saw what what she was talking about. She this was an opportunity to pat themselves on the back for a great semester and a great year in the same semester that they made it twice as hard for students to get an education. And, you know, we got to take those opportunities to say, you know what, we're not going to let you pat yourself on the back here. This is a semester in which you double tuition for all students. And, you know, we, we're not going to let you say that this this is a great, you know, semester. Uh, so we just, you know, protest is, is important. You know, we have a strong history of, of protest, strong history in Newfoundland. And this, for by, by protests go, as protests go, this was very tame. It was a, you know, the uh, a few students with a sign. Uh, same same thing happened last uh, president with Dr. Gary. A pink slip saying, you know, resign. And uh, it's it's any any kind of protest they're not going to be happy with. So we're not going to we're not going to be accused of uh, being harassing or intimidating when uh, the pre- the university has all the power in this situation. Is there a particular reason why it's Dr. Gary and Vianne versus Dr. Kachinowski and Dr. Timmons? Uh, you know, presidents are, you know, well, uh, people just like you and I, you know, I, I have the same level of respect I do for you as I do for Dr. Timmons. And well, that I, doesn't sound very good. Same amount of respect I have for uh, my friend or my student or my uh, coworker. You know, I, I, I view people on the same plane and I'm, uh, the, I think that the, uh, 
this idea of respectability of politics that they're trying to use as a cudgel against students protesting is is it just a sign of authoritarian culture that's going on at, at, at uh, the administration's office? Well, I mean, and you can view me as you see fit, but it doesn't sound like you have much respect for the, the president of the university. And if you have the same level of respect for me, that's interesting, but I can take it. I'm a big boy. Um, last one that I'll put out there is I also asked her about this, and we've been talking about it because housing is a crunch. And for whether it be foreign students and or people moving into town from gander to find a home and in the postdoc world you know there used to be a program at Monk called HomeShare. you matched up a student with a senior for a, a cut rate in rent for some household chores and whatnot the senior wins the student wins the university wins we all win and for others looking for housing they win as well any thought and talk inside of monsu about that because that could really benefit some of the people you're representing absolutely i mean housing is always a concern for us we uh we have a huge, uh, you know, population of, of, of students that are constantly coming to us saying, you know, we have problems with our landlord, rent is too high, uh, we problems with res. We uh, we are constantly engaged on that, so I definitely like to look into that, uh, Patty. Uh, we're always looking for ways to, to advocate for, for housing. It's a huge, huge problem, uh, especially, you know, with inflation going on. The rent rates have skyrocketed. Appreciate the time this morning, John. Thanks. Thanks, Patty. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. All right, John Harris is the uh, Director of External Affairs at Monsu. Time for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number 10 and say good morning to the province's Chief Medical Officer of Health. That's Dr. Janice Fitzgerald. Dr. Fitzgerald, you're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's a lot to discuss, obviously. Um, <laughs> so what do you attribute the surge in respiratory illness to? Because there's a variety of comments coming from all different corners, whether it be the masking, the lockdowns, and whether you know, travel, and of course, seasonal influenza was curbed by that because there wasn't as much global travel. But what do you attribute it to? Because we're seeing pretty big numbers. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly all of, you know, the, the travel certainly is, is part of it. People have gotten back to, you know, normal life, and, and that includes travel and includes uh, getting together. And certainly we expected, I think, to see an earlier flu season, given what was happening elsewhere in the, not just the country, but in the world. Um, and uh, I think we also have to remember that we have had two years without much flu. And so, um, you know, the little kitties especially um, just haven't had that same uh, chance to build up immunity. You know, they haven't had that exposure in the past, which is really, you know, uh, your immune system reacts to that and helps you to fight off future exposure. So uh, I think that's that's part of the reason why we're seeing that rise this year. So there's a bunch of new phrases that have been coined in the recent past, like immunity, debt, or deficit, and what have you. But your immune system's not like a muscle. It's not like it's atrophy because I've been lying in bed for a month, and all of a sudden my muscles have shrunk, and I'm you know, not as mobile or flexible. So how do we view our immunity system regarding... You know, we bubble wrapped everybody here. You know, you can't, you got to wash your hands when your, your children get just a little speck of dirt on their finger. So what do we attribute the immunity system waning? Because, like I say, it's not a muscle. It's a thing. So it's... Um it's not that it's waning, it's that, you know, our immune system is designed so that when we, 
um, when we get exposed to things, um, then we, you know, that triggers antibody formation and then that happens naturally. It happens to vaccines as well, but it also happens naturally when you're exposed to a bacteria or a virus or whatever it may be. And uh, so you trigger these antibodies and then um, eventually there are cells in your body that will help to form a memory of that uh, virus. And, and when you're exposed to it again, you'll be able to fight it off. Um, the bottom line we have this year is that people haven't been exposed over the past two years. So we know with influenza in particular um, that immunity can wane with time and, uh, and the virus changes as well from year to year. So there's also that which influences um, how your body reacts. So, um, you know, so there's, there's a number of things that are contributing to why this year it's a little worse. You know, we're seeing an earlier flu season and why it seems like we're having um, more spread than we have had in the past, which is why it's so important this year for us to make sure we get our flu vaccines. The just so many so many new coined phrases that it's hard to keep up with sometimes. But with the living with COVID, which is where many people have gone. I mean, whether it be the uh, masking in public indoor spaces, what have you, people have moved on. They're treating it like a the endemic the game is over we're, here we go we're learning to live with covid but then it's the issue regarding repeated infections you know i'm, I'm kind of tired of talking about vaccines because it's been so controversial and, and so bizarre in some measures but what are we talking about with the risk of reinfection because for instance what do you think of when you talk about long covid we haven't really recognized it as something in this province necessarily in some places they're talking about long covid specialists long covid special uh, long covid uh, uh, clinics we haven't really gone down that road. How do you think about and talk about uh, long COVID and repeated infections? Um, so certainly, uh, what we what we know um, to date. I mean, you know, uh, prolonged symptoms after COVID is certainly not. Um, you know, we certainly have people who have experienced that. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, once once it moves into the realm of long COVID, um, it kind of moves out of the realm of public health and it becomes, a, you know, an individual uh, condition to be managed, which fits more into acute care. So some of those questions would have to be directed in that, uh, in that way. Um, but, you know, with regard to repeated infections, certainly, I mean, there are lots of lots of infections that we get repeatedly exposed to and uh, certainly um to some degree, repeated exposure helps to keep your immune system primed so that you can fight off these infections well, right? Um, and we know that um, there's evidence right now that suggests that um, that with vaccination, there is a lower chance of long COVID developing because the disease is milder and that it tends to be associated more closely with more severe disease. So, uh, you know, there, there's there's still lots of information that uh, we've got to gather. And uh, um, but uh, I'm sure as as time goes on, it will become clearer exactly what we need to do in that regard. How do we differentiate between the boosters that are available for Omicron in particular? I think there's some confusion out there. Is what shot I should be getting? Yeah, so what we're recommending right now is that you're getting a, a COVID vaccine, that you should get a bivalent vaccine, and bivalent vaccines are available at all of our uh, vaccine um, uh, clinics as well as at pharmacies, and, um, and definitely, um, you know, we should be getting a bivalent vaccine. Okay, so how do we monitor, you know, as you'll hear, you'll hear more of this than I do possibly, but the potential negative impact of a vaccine, 
How do we monitor it? How do we report it? What are the numbers in this province? Because it can go all the way from a sore arm. And I mean, I'm not suggesting that some of the stories about someone got the, the shot at the pharmacy and didn't make it to the front door. But how are we measuring these things? And how are we reporting the numbers? Yeah, so the, we have a, a system in place um, that we do report adverse events following immunization, or we call them AFIs. And um, so there is a system in place for that. Now, there are expected side effects of vaccination. Um, those are not needed to be reported. So if you get a sore arm, if your arm gets a little bit red, if you get a bit of a temp, if you feel the chills, these are all expected uh, reactions to getting a vaccine. And it's part of the immune system doing its work. Um, so we don't, you know, those are not considered to be adverse events. Um, adverse events are things that are not expected when you get a vaccination and that may, um, you know, may influence, may cause someone to have to seek medical care or that sort of thing. Um, so we do have a system where we monitor these. Um, with regard to numbers at the moment, I really I can't give you that information, uh, Patty, but, you know, if you want to check in, uh, check back with us, we can certainly try to get some of that information for you. Because that's, that leads to some of the uh, people being sus- suspicious about vaccines. And, you know, as we, t- we know to be true, a lie is traveled all the way around the world before the truth gets out of bed. So some of this information seeps into people's psyches, and that's it. There's no talking them out of it. So should, in your estimation, should we be hearing more reporting of things like myocarditis or anything else that would be considered more severe so that people had information to chew on as opposed to allow social media to help gauge their their hesitancy or their want to get vaccinated? Yeah, so there is information out there about myocarditis, and I think we have been, you know, we've been quite uh, transparent with regard to, uh, you know, these sorts of side effects that have happened. Um, There's only, I I guess, you know, you, you can only put the truth out there and then people have to to make uh, uh, to make decisions about what they're going to do but what we do know is that our vaccines are safe that even myocarditis these these um, side effects have been or complications have been rare when we think about the number of vaccines that have been given and they have generally been mild uh, conditions so uh, you know we have to remember that our vaccines are safe uh, when we think about the numbers of COVID vaccines that have been given over the last couple of years you know it's really um, it's quite a testament to the safety of the vaccine. Um, And it's really important. I think the message here has to be that vaccines are our best defense um, against things like flu and like COVID, and that we really do need to encourage people to get out there and get vaccinated. Uh, Certainly right now, what we're seeing is that a lot of young children are um, getting sick. um, And without that previous experience of uh, exposure to flu, you know, they're they're getting a little bit sicker than what we would normally see. And uh, vaccination is certainly the best defense to prevent that severe disease from happening and preventing hospitalizations. Um, and for little kids, less than six months, because vaccination is for flu is open to anyone six months and older. Uh, but for those little kids below six months of age, uh, you know, it's really important for the people around those children to get vaccinated. So parents, grandparents, anyone who's going to be visiting the home um, should really be vaccinated as well. Help us understand the difference in dosages for the flu shot. I know there's one that has a little extra kick for seniors that that's not a very medical clinical term to add, but help us understand the different doses for different ages in the flu shot. Yeah, so the, the flu shot that we give for the majority of people in the province is the same dose for everybody. Um, and uh, there is a, a flu HD, it's called, or high dose, which is uh, a slightly higher dosage of the same the same. Uh, components, uh, just a higher dosage, uh, that are available for people who are older. 
um, and that's uh, so it's offered here in um, in all long-term care personal care homes uh, in that setting and uh, it has it's we offer this because it is a higher um, because of the higher dosage it, uh, people in this age group can sometimes not form as good an immune response um, and so it just helps to improve the immune response to the vaccine what about multiple vaccines in close proximity to each other even the same day whether it be flu a bivalent uh, booster or a shingles vaccine what do people need to know um, certainly at the moment, uh, it's quite safe to get your COVID and flu vaccines at the same time. Um, and it's it's safe to get flu vaccine at the same time, just about any other vaccine that's out there. Uh, with COVID in the youngest age group that we've just recently approved, um, there is some, um, you know, there may be some separation. But by and large, um, it's quite safe to get vaccines together. I hear from people all the time on public health measures, and some people are sick of it, even though the COVID, uh, pardon me, the virus isn't sick of us quite yet. Nothing has been the silver bullet, and you say the vaccines are our number one protection, but between washing your hands and physical distancing and masking and vaccines and a bit of uh, awareness, you say that nothing's met the public threshold, public health threshold, to reintroduce or strongly go beyond strongly recommending masking. I'm asking on behalf of some parents in particular of school-aged children and a couple of people who talk to me all the time about the importance of masking. Masking alone is not going to do it. But what does the public health threshold look like in your office to talk about things like that? Because if you go to the grocery store like I do, the protections that people are using and their own individual responsibility, by and large, has gone by the wayside. Yeah, so I think what we have to remember um, is that, you know, a public health emergency has to be, can only be declared when, um, you know, there is indeed an emergency that is existing that can't be mitigated by other means, right? Um, so right now we have other means to be able to mitigate any kind of crisis that may be happening. Um, and we have vaccinations uh, that are available. When we think about COVID in the beginning, A, it was a brand new disease. We didn't really know what was happening with it. And we were still learning lots. We didn't have any vaccines. So we did you know, we had an emergency in that situation, and it was spreading quite easily. Um, <clears throat> that's not the case. Uh, you know, we have vaccinations. We have a way to be able to mitigate the risk of these diseases that are circulating right now, COVID and flu. So we need to, uh, you know, you, you have to have um, really the public health measures that you would have to bring in would have to be the only way that you could mitigate that risk, which it's not. Um, so when we talk about masking, certainly what we know, um, you know, the biggest risk right now with mask, uh, with spread is when you've had symptoms and, you know, you may be recovering for those 10 days after your symptoms start. That's when you're at big, biggest risk for spreading. So, you know, we that's why we're recommending, uh, strongly recommending that people wear a mask um, in that uh, in that 10 days after your symptoms uh, come on and when you feel good enough to, you know, when you feel recovered and you're able to sort of get back into into life again, um, that you wear that mask for 10 days. So that's really important to reduce the risk. Um, and that we ask that all people consider the risk when they're going into situations where, you know, they may be in a, a closed situation for an extended period of time uh, within a crowded situation where there may be a risk uh, for spread of any respiratory disease that they would consider wearing a mask and of course nothing um, you you have to remember that uh, hand washing is really uh, very important as well uh, both to prevent spread to others and to yourself um, so all of those things are still really important uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning dr fitzgerald while we have you 
Well, I think for me, our main, my main message today is that we really want people to get out there and get vaccinated. We need children to get vaccinated. Um, you know, we know that uh, this is, it's, uh, it's still going to be another uh, few weeks before we start to see a waning of this flu, um, this flu spike. So we really want people to get out there and get vaccinated. It's not too late. Uh, please connect with uh, your local pharmacy, your physician, uh, or an RHA clinic. Uh, you can go online and book your appointment. Uh, if you don't see an appointment, that doesn't mean that they, you know, there won't be any there by the end of the day. Like they're, they're continually adding new appointments all the time. So please check back if you don't see any right at the moment that you go in. Well, last one on behalf of an emailer. Do you foresee this being like the uh, seasonal influenza annual shot recommended by public health and others regarding COVID? Uh, I mean, we don't know yet exactly what's going to be the recommendation, but uh, that certainly is possible. But uh, I guess time will tell. And NASI, our National Advisory Committee on Immunization, you know, will be considering all of those questions. And um, we take our, um, our lead from them, really. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Fitzgerald, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald is the province's chief medical officer of health. Anything you want to say about that or anything else, you can do it after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Hi, Lisa. And line number one, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, perfect. I just want to say thank you for allowing me to speak and bring attention to the problems associated with government on dealing with support for people with disabilities and the issues that I've encountered. It's been very hard to deal with the government. Um, the things, they, they basically don't want to, to settle this problem I've had with my sister Denise, and I've called in before about it. And basically it's to do with her living standards, her, her living situation in Bishop's Falls. I would very much love to get that settled so we can move on with life. Life is kind of at a standstill for us. But I wanted to draw attention to something I read this week, so I I figured I'd call in and let you know that the Prime Minister of Canada spoke to some of this uh, on International Day of Persons with Disabilities on December the 3rd, and he said that um, there are 6.2 million Canadians with disabilities and that no one-size-fits-all solution. And that's the problem we're basically having with government, is that my sister's needs are so complex that she doesn't fit into that tidy little box that they want to put her in. And right now they are jeopardizing the level of care because we are dealing with a lady who's wanting to take care of my sister, and she's hanging on and she's continuing to do so. But it is challenging because, of course, they are not settling her, her uh, living situation. And right now uh, it seems like I am being held hostage a little bit because I have a home that I could sell, but I really can't sell, and it's been brought to my attention from one of the organizations that if I sell the home, then they may displace Denise, take her out of the care, and place her in a long-term care facility. So I'm a little nervous because I can't seem to get from government what the end goal is here. They tell me that Denise needs to go into an ALC home, be paid a certain amount for that home, which doesn't fit her needs and criteria, and someone is not going to do that. And if she doesn't do that, my thing is she would end up going to long-term care, which I'm also told she's not safe in because of her young age and her ability to still live and thrive in community. And the Prime Minister of Canada basically says in his briefing that that is the case, that these people have the right to live in the communities. Everyone does better in a community if they have the right to choose where they live and they have the supports in place. 
And yet our government are fighting me on that, and I really don't understand what the end game is here. I just want her safe. I want to begin the grieving process for our mom, which we haven't had time to do, and the healing process. And that's basically it. I mean, we are at a standstill. That's an update on it, is that we are at a standstill, and I do not understand and get it when our own prime minister says that everybody with disabilities do not fit in a box, and our Newfoundland government wants to fit everybody in a box, and and I don't understand it. I, I just would like to settle this and update and get her settled and safe. Well, of course. And I'm pretty sure I've asked this already. And, you know, we're talking about someone's safety and health and dignity and all the rest of it. We're also talking about money, and we can't avoid that when we talk about anything in this world because money will be part of the equation. Uh, I can't remember if I got, if you knew the answer to this one, but when is the deadline for either more money for the home care worker or alternatively into long-term care for Denise? Well, this is, this is the question that we're waiting an answer for, to be honest with you. And this is what's been said to me. There was an MHA working on Denise's behalf in her district, and there was a meeting that occurred this week. I was not part or privy to the meeting, so it is, you know, secondhand information. And basically it was said that the government in Newfoundland and Central Health would love to work with me with about Denise and that the ball was basically in my court. But the offer that was presented was the exact same offer that they went through to explain what it was about, which I don't need an explanation. The amounts don't work out, as we talked about before. We did the math on it. It works out basically before taxes. This lady would actually make $4.88. And and for me to go into exact ways the numbers come out would be a long explanation here. But we did the math on it. We explained the math on it and why this doesn't work. And they and you're able to offer that kind of salary because people will will question that. And basically, the salary gets offered because it's done under a block funding program, which is not an hourly wage. And my answer to that is this person would still have to work the same number of hours to care for my sister because her needs are so complex. She doesn't fit the tidy little box that you want to put her in because she is a 24-hour-a-day person who needs assistance. So you can call it block funding or you can call it uh, you know, Merry Christmas. It doesn't matter what you call it. The same number of hours are required. And if you work out the hours, it is insulting to this person to offer them a wage of $4.88. It is devaluing our home care uh, people that are on the front lines caring for us. And everybody who hears this story should question it and ask questions of why they're able to do this and how they could get away with this. You are a valued member of our society. You care for our people that need you, especially our society with disabilities. And anybody who finds themselves in that, whether it's seniors or disabled people or seniors that are disabled, they need the care that you can provide. And that's the devaluation we're looking at. And I just simply don't understand how they expect someone to survive off that and provide the care that my sister requires. It's just unreal. So the end game is I don't know. Um, it was presented to me that if in event I do sell the house, government could step in, displace my sister and say, well, we're done now. We're not paying what, you're pay what we're paying now in the emergency event when it happened because you've now made your sister homeless. So I have to be very careful. But I don't know if that's the case. I just know that it's been presented to me. And no one will actually sit down and say, this is what's going to happen. Because Denise cannot be left on her own because she can do nothing for herself. They would actually jeopardize her safety and well-being 
to stop the care required. So I don't know the answer to that. Uh, government has not been uh, forthcoming. They say they want to work with me, but yet since the meeting I had, I've heard nothing from them other than what was told to me the other day by a third party. Uh, I appreciate the, the time and the update, Lisa. Stay in touch. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, time for the news. When we come back, we've been talking about food. We talk about food banks. Fella on the front lines of the food conversation is Jody Williams at Bridges to Hope. He's up after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the manager at Bridges to Hope. That's Jody Williams. Hey, Jody, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Good, man. Good. I don't know how much time I spend thinking about and talking about food and food insecurity and food <laughs> banks, but here we go. Probably not as much as you. One thing I think people need to understand is not just the spike in food bank usage, 27% year over year, but it's the changing mm -hmm. face of your client or your patrons. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, right now... Um about 40% of our clients are actually working. So this is something that we've never seen before. We've used to have a very small percentage of people that were working, uh, but to be at 40%, uh, I mean, you know, and we're seeing uh, like, you know, last year we probably see one or two new people a month. Now we're seeing 60 to 70 new people a month, never been to a food bank before. Um, and then 50% of our clients are actually seniors and children. Uh, both of them are about 25% each. So it's a pretty dire situation, to say the least. How far were you able to stretch a dollar last year versus this year? Oh, my God. Because um, <clears throat> you have a different arrangement. Like my dollar, I can only stretch as far as the grocery store allows me to. But you have a relationship with distributors and other facets to stretch a buck. So just give us the year-over-year uh, yeah. year Yeah, comparison. sure. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I mean, years ago, I'd say I could turn a dollar into four. Uh, I would now maybe say two fifty, two dollars $2. I mean, we're paying. Um, the difference, too, is... Um, like a few years ago, the reason I say that is before COVID, 80% of our food was donated, so that would be that would be taken into that uh, equation. So it cost us a lot less to serve a person. Now we're purchasing all of our food, uh, and we're paying uh, you know the same uh, percentage uh, price. Only we're paying it a bit more on the wholesale price. But our prices still went up 30% also, you know what I mean, uh, even though they're still a bit lower. So uh, the problem we've been having, of course, is the cr the prices of food driving uh, people to the food bank. But then on top of that, we're paying those prices also. Um, so, you know, it's been the kind of perfect storm. I hear the stories, but you not only hear the stories, you see the faces. What are your, what are your deepest worries? Oh, man. My deepest worries really are, um, I mean, the thing is, is you can't take this, it's hard to haul out the food security out of all these other issues, right? The poverty, the addiction, the mental health. Uh, and, you know, it's not really a food problem. The problem is people, the food is there, is that people don't make enough to buy the food. All right, so... And I don't foresee that changing in 2023 per se. Um, so to my biggest thing is, you know, I think 
we're at the point that I would declare it kind of more of like a health emergency. Um, and, you know, we need to really start seeing food more as a basic human right. And then through that philosophical lens that will start to change some laws and stuff that will start to uh, kind of bring things. You know, if it was considered a basic right, then you would need to make enough money to afford that food. If food was considered a basic uh, human right, uh, a lot of the stores throwing out food into dumpsters would be illegal to do that. And these are things that would really start to make some changes. Yeah, France outlawed it in 2016. Uh, yeah, exactly. What kind of relationship do you have with the retailers, whether it be the Costco's, the Walmart's, or Loblaws, or anybody else? Um, we do have some relationships. Uh, there's an app, um, like that. You, there's an app called a uh, um, Second Harvest that you can kind of like where Sobeys will go on and they'll put food on the app, and then we kind of go on there and try to claim it, uh, try to get there kind of first. Um, that's just with them. Uh, Costco donates some bread products and stuff to us uh, every couple of weeks. Um, but the thing is, the problem is, it's the things we do get are kind of uh, they're kind of usually full of carbs and sweets. So the the things like the meats and the vegetables and fruits, I still think you know there's thousands and thousands of pounds being thrown out every day in the garbage because these big corporations are really scared of taking on some kind of liability issue. So uh, one of the things I've been, you know, I've met with the government and specifically asked them to look into uh, changing or making a law so that once we accept the food as a food bank, that corporation is no longer liable. So there's a, I think there's some government intervention here that needs to happen. Uh, and then once that happens again, and then you take something like France, where you can actually get fined for throwing out food. And then, you know, because the thing is, there's a lot of food that's being thrown out, right? And I would think, I um, mean, I would go far as say 5,000 pounds a day easy in a city like this. That's just food because a lot of it too is waiting on a ferry. You know, it might not be the perfect, perfect fruit to sell, but it's still usable. I mean, you refer to it as a health issue, and I think it's absolutely true. This is a public health crisis. When there's other yep. crises, governments mobilize. On this front, not so much. I mean, rightfully mm -hmm. so, when something like Fiona strikes on the southwest coast, governments have an active role to play. How yep. we have not treated food insecurity, food shortages, food bank usage. What I mean, for starters, the food bank was a backstop, a one-off for one time. Yeah. Now, millions of Canadians, if they didn't have it, they'd have no other choice but to steal it from a store. So how we yeah. don't see governments mobilized to deal with food issues is maddening. Even if it be things like liabilities for the big retailers, to make donations to the various food banks across the province. So they've got to step up their game. Things like $500 yeah, checks yeah. don't deal with the root cause. Uh, no, definitely not. Uh, and, you know, there's infrastructure things. I know they don't ever want to kind of give us money to buy food. Uh, but, you know, like if that law were to pass, say, and all of a sudden all these companies were like, okay, now we need to donate meat. Now all of a sudden every food bank has an infrastructure issue. You know, they, they don't have the proper freezer probably or whatever. So there's, you know, there would be other things. But there's ways for governments to help. If they don't want to just help with here's some money for food, uh, there's other ways certainly they can help, right? Uh, there's no doubt about it. And for a lot of it being legislative, we got to get the uh, we got to get Newfoundlanders up to a livable wage at the end of the day. You know, we don't. Uh, 
we don't really want, like you said, we started in 1989 as a Band-Aid to a recession, and here we are 32 years later in a way worse scenario than we were back then. You know, uh, more money is certainly part of it. Another Josh Mee speaks of that all the time. But at the exact same time, there's got to be enhanced uh, focus and attention given to harm reduction policies as well, because yep, there's there's problems with money. It could be the it could be the savior, but it could also become the beginning of a problem. And I'm not trying to paint people with a negative stereotypical brush. It's just the reality that we have to deal with. Uh, last one. Do do you and Bridges to Hope have a relationship with the hunters? Now that we've got the ability for some country foods, you know, moose and others, moose, moose products and other uh, other items to make it into your food bank. Yes. So people can directly donate moose to us up until January 6th. Um, so, yes, they can directly. We do have a license to accept it. Uh, of course, and then they just need to give us their license information, et cetera. The best way to do that, though, of course, if someone's interested in donating is to call us uh, so then we can walk them through the proper protocols of doing that. I appreciate the time. Uh, final word for you, Jody. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, it's Christmas time, of course, and, um, you know, we're always looking for some uh, support. Uh, so if anybody would like to offer some, you can head over to our website at uh, bridgestohope.ca. And if you don't have a credit card, you can text uh, FOOD, F-O-O-D, to 45678. And uh, happy holidays, everyone. I know it's a lot of doom and gloom, it seems, these days. But, uh, you know, uh, this time of year, one thing I do see here at the food bank is the overwhelming kindness of strangers, you know, donating money, donating food. So just want to mention that also. Good on you. Keep up the good work. Stay in touch, Jody. All right, brother. Peace. Okay, bye-bye. Jody Williams. The manager of Bridges to Hope. Okay, uh, final break of the morning. When we come back, I made mention of this uh, program. Where, you know, I think it's called Send It to Seniors. I flipped the dial in the morning to see who's talking about what. And I heard Kaylee talking to Chrissy about Made to Sparkle Cleaning Service and what they're doing for seniors. And also Jim Dean, the member for St. John Centers in the queue as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Where am I going, Dave? Line number two, line number three, line number three it is. Okay, say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Centers, the leader of the NDP. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to do it. And I, I'm, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the the, the, uh, the issue around the phone med, the uh, uh, the the eight one one controversy that seems to be in social media. But I've got to comment on the two previous callers, uh, which are health related as well. Lisa, listen to Lisa, and and uh, and I listened to your conversation with uh, Jody Williams, and I think both of you hit the nail on the head. It's a, this is a health issue, and I think Patty. Uh, uh, it, this needs to be treated as an emergency, uh, similar to what we did with uh, with, with COVID-19 and the CERB payouts and uh, and the approach and Hurricane Fiona. And I think in, in the long term, uh, as Jody said, this is about putting uh, getting money in people's pockets uh, to uh, down the road to, to resolve it so people can afford it. I'm hoping that the Guaranteed Basic Income Committee that uh, we have been demanding is is going to address the long term. But I think short term, it's it's it is. Uh, it's a health emergency. It's a food insecurity, hunger issue, and we need to address that uh, immediately. Uh, this is just untenable. Anyway, that's uh, that's my speech. And those, you're making it tough for me to stay on topic. I'll say that much. <laughs> no worries there. That's what the show's about. So, with regard, and I, I want to f- uh, pick up on this issue uh, with the, uh, looking at the release uh, by the uh, or the letter to uh, the NLMA to its members, and I've heard from doctors and people alike there is a, a tremendous amount of frustration here. 
And I guess there's a concern here with the, if you look at this. Here is a clear example of, a, of a basically a contract, a privatized uh, system that is indeed going to cost us more uh, and, and, and sort of creating a two-tiered system. Uh, I, most of the people who called into my office over the last year, they're looking for a doctor. They want to actually uh, uh, to see a doctor in or a health professional face-to-face. -face. The people who are lining up outside the uh, Black Marsh, uh, the clinic, I think they're earlier, uh, they were look they're in line up to get in to make an appointment to see a doctor. Um, and yet we have a, we we obviously have money to pay a private firm, which means then we've got money to address the concerns that the doctors have raised, and and it seems to be an unwillingness to do this. So, like it, it, I guess I'm looking at this homemed. On top of all of this, this contract, there's a profit margin there to be had. Uh, and there's also a not not the same over uh, overhead as a doctor would have, uh, and and I, I'm I'm at a loss as to understand how we're not using that money then to address the concerns that family physicians, uh, family doctors have raised, um, and so that they can better help people in the system. Because I can tell you, it's uh, you know the people who who are calling me, they've expressed uh, they've expressed frustration with the 811 trying to get through or get they get in help they need not all but there are, there are a significant number of calls to come in but at the same time the fear what I'm hearing from people is that we, we need a doctor we need to see someone uh, and I'm not sure if this is the best uh, use of our money at this time if we're if we're actually if anything else we're probably de demoralizing and devaluing what doctors do and the and the and the expenses that they have yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to start with that kind of stuff. The The whole concept of the potential expansion of private offerings in healthcare, I think there's some room for some, because it already exists in some form or fashion, but the most distinct worry on that front that I hear people uh, voice is that the private clinics will be able to turn you away if you have complex needs. And then all of a sudden, yep. the public system is so overwhelmed yep. with it, then, of course, we have a distinct disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And, and, and clearly, that's the, that's the situation. Look, if you walk into a doctor's office, okay, I look at my, when, when I had a doctor, <laughs> uh, you look at the equipment that's there, the invest, and so that they, and, and that you have to do a complete examination to order the tests and so on and so forth. That doesn't exist in this, in this system. But I think, you know what, there, there was a way we could incentivize doctors to stay, to take on the work, to, uh, to address those needs. That would be a start. But you're right. In the end, um, like I don't, I, I want to be able to, I, I, I want to be able to go into a doctor's office regardless of my uh, issues, and I know that I'm going to be, that I'm going to be seen, and that I'm, and, and uh, regardless of how complex my issues are or how simple they are, whether it's just to go and get a, a prescription renewal or I've got uh, multiple complex needs, I know that the doctor is going to, is going to, uh, 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 provide me with his, full, his or her full attention, uh, and, and get, and hopefully get me the. Treatment treatment or the uh, the medical care that I need in the end it's, it's peace of mind and and it's certainly for a lot of people out there they are a lot of a lot of very frightened people that, that they're they uh, that they're they're that they are left without that care and they uh, and they have no way of treating I guess what chronic illnesses and chronic disease that uh, that needs a doctor's attention for sure uh, let's leave it there for today Jim yeah. I want to sneak on one more call Sure, no problem. Take care, Pat. Thanks, Jim. Thank All no. the best. Bye-bye. Jim Din, member for St. John's Center, leader of the NDP. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Kaylee. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? 
I'm great. As I said, I was. Work. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, just out of the corner of my ear, I was flipping the dial this morning to see who was talking about what. And I heard you talking about, uh, I think it's called Send It to Seniors. And now, I think in memory of your mother, I believe her name was Margaret, tell us exactly what you're doing. Yeah, so it's called uh, Margaret Send It to a Senior. Um, I started it five years ago. Um, I was visiting my grandmother, actually, in uh, her senior's home and got to talking with one of the nurses and found out that a lot of the seniors there didn't have any family. So the only prizes that they'd receive would be from the nursing home itself. And that really broke my heart. So from that day forward, Santa to a senior was born. And I have to get you to uh, revisit the one moment where you knew this is something you had to continue doing, and it's the story of one senior that decided to hold off, even though the anticipation was growing, to open up the, the hamper or the gift. What happened? Yes, so I link up with um, Seniors NL, uh, so I speak with a the lady there, and she gets uh, comments from the seniors, and the first year that we actually did it was a surprise to a lot of the seniors, because it's not something they received before, uh, and they got an email back from an older lady that had taken her bag and put it under the tree to leave to open on Christmas morning so that she had something to look forward to. And that <laughs> that pulled on my heartstrings. Of course it did. What kind of stuff are you providing these seniors and putting a smile on their face? Yeah, so we offer a full list of essentials is our priority. So shampoo, conditioner, toothbrushes, toothpaste, the works of it, um, but we also take donations for small prizes as well. So bingo dabbers and playing cards and large puzzles, you name it. How do you get it to them? Is this a face-to-face -face delivery kind of thing where they know that you and whoever helps you is behind this? Um, so there's a, there's a lot of hands in it. Uh, we do all of the donation taking ourselves. Um, we take a look at what we have um, and whatever else is needed. We go out to purchase ourselves. We take home and I gather all my elves together and we make a night of putting those bags together. We send them off to Coleman's, which is who Seniors NL links up with for their food hampers. And then they send them off to each of those seniors just because we can't obviously know exactly who those seniors are since it's a, a low income thing. Uh, so they do they take it from there. I think it's brilliant. I wish we had more time to talk about some of the personal stories that you've heard over the years. But if someone wants to help you out, whether it be with horsepower or donation, what do they have to do? Uh, absolutely. So they can reach out to us on Facebook. You'll see a post there with a list of all the essentials. Uh, so it's just Made to Sparkle on Facebook. On Instagram, we're Made to Sparkle NL. And you can also send uh, EMT donations as well if shopping isn't really your thing. And you'll find all that information on Facebook. I wish we had more time, but I'm pleased we had a chance to speak this morning. Keep up the great work and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kaylee. Bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. It's a good one to wrap it up. Good show today. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, unhappy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.